VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, January the 25th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is producing the program. You'll be speaking with David when you give us a call to get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. All right, so last night in the send-off event for the some 250 amateur athletes setting their sights on Prince Edward Island and the Canada Winter Games uh, beginning on February the 18th. So at the kickoff event last night, hosted by Jamie Korab, you know, not every athlete from the province was in attendance, but many of them joined by Zoom if they were unable to get to the event in person. So we found out the what the kit is going to look like, the clothes that they're going to wear, and we also find out who is going to be the flag bearer, a really prestigious honor to be bestowed. And it's going to be Gleb Estignev from Paradise. Well, maybe Mal Pearl. I'm a little bit confused because may, he made news back in uh, 2019. He became the first person from this province to compete in the Canadian National Trampoline Championships. He actually finished sixth. He was the only uh, person who finished in the top 15 who wasn't from Ontario, Quebec, or British Columbia. So Gleb is going to be or Gleb is going to be the flag bearer for the Canada Winter Games. He's a gymnast, of course, a trampoline competitor. So good luck to all hands. And curiously, today in 19... what? 1924 was the first ever Olympic Winter Games kicked off in Chamonix, France. So there you go. I know you heard uh, Brian Medor in the VOCM newscast with the audio from last night's game where Alex LeHook scored the winner for the Colorado Avalanche. It's his fourth goal in six games. He was the third star of the game, and I can tell you right now, if you haven't seen the highlights yet, it's worth your while. He was absolutely flying. So New York's starting to come alive, and that's, of course, a great thing. And when he was living and playing hockey here in the province, he would have been playing AAA in the under-13 ranks. Big win last night for the Eastern Knights. They won a game that allowed them to be the host for the upcoming U13 AAA Atlantic Championships, so that's a big win for the Knights. Congratulations to them. Okay, let's talk a little travel, because there's always been a big load of news regarding travel and the travel woes that people experience, whether it be over the summer past and, of course, the holiday season. This is a great story, and maybe I've told this one before in the past. So it was on this date in 1890 that pioneering journalist Nellie Bly completed, uh, completed a record-breaking trip around the world in 72 days. She set out to prove that Jules Verne's fictional journey around the world in 80 days could actually be achieved. So Nellie, whose real name was Elizabeth Jane Cochran, but she went by Nellie Bly, she traveled 24,899 miles, mostly alone, trains, steamships. She only had the dress on her back and what they called a sturdy overcoat, just a very small travel bag with toiletries and underwear. But she had a fascinating life. So while she was circumnavigating the globe for her newspaper, you know, trying to put some dispatches in through cable networks or what have you, delays up to a couple of weeks when you juxtapose that with the instantaneous communication of today. She first became renowned as a reporter and using some of the verbiage of the time. So she did an investigation of what we used to refer to as insane asylums, and she looked at the conditions. She presented herself as insane, as mad. And so as a result, and their expose that she wrote, resulted in a grand jury investigation, $850,000 in increased funds to care for folks in these asylums. So apparently when she was at the tender age of 16, she read a column in the Pittsburgh Dispatch, what she thought was extremely misogynistic. It was called, What Girls Are Good For? She wrote a fiery anonymous rebuttal to the editor. The editor was so impressed 
that put a plea in the paper for the author to uh, tell them, tell the paper who she was, and she came forward, and the rest is history. So Elizabeth Jane Cochran or Nellie Bly, uh, around the world in 72 days, completed in 1890. Okay, so regarding modern-day travel woes, so at the federal liberal retreat, we've heard from Transport Minister Alagbra talk about changes are coming, and they've got to come. We have heard all the stories. There was actually a caller yesterday talking about the fact that she's wondering whether or not there's the opportunity for a class action lawsuit against the airlines for what was the disastrous holiday season. She missed Christmas with her own family. There is indeed a class action coming to bear in Saskatchewan regarding Sunwing and just how many people they left to their own devices and huge financial loss down in Mexico over the holidays. So they may even see not only some strengthening of what seems to be a very toothless airline passenger bill of rights, maybe even some new legislation. So he goes on to say that people don't want to see angry politicians. They want to see action. And on that front, Minister, you're absolutely right, because it's simply not good enough. But apparently changes are coming. And there was an update also from uh, Karina Gould, Minister Gould, about the passport delays. And she says they've been partially rectified. Additional staffing, they're back to their benchmarks of wait times, but you let me know if you're actually seeing that where you are. And regarding travel, we've heard, and we always hear these stories, unfortunately, over the winter season, where there will be people lost and sometimes not found safe and sound. There was a good story on the West Coast where a couple of fellas, they were overdue, but they found a cabin to weather a storm, were found safe and sound. And, you know, since then, there were some calls to the VOC Morning Show and emails to me about friendly reminders of when you're taken to the trails, because there's nothing finer than a day on the snowmobile with the boys or the girls. You know, make sure that the route that you have planned you stick to and you let people know where you're going and the route you plan to take so that if and when you get stranded, whether it be the sled breaks down or you just run into nasty weather, that we have a better chance of finding you. Okay. This is kind of a queer story, or odd story. That's a funny way to put it. Pardon me. Dave gives me a big smile. And this is, we'll stick with Labrador. We spoke with Chris Lacey, who is the chair of the Canes Quest Endurance Race. And then this story here, I don't think I've ever heard anything quite like it, but we know that we haven't put, or there hasn't been a man on the moon or flown around the moon since the Apollo missions. So there was a discovery in the 1970s in Labrador of the Mistastin Crater. So, of course, an impact crater is created when an asteroid or a meteor, meteorite strikes into the Earth, melts, and recrystallizes the rock through those shock waves. And so, apparently, this crater in Labrador has very unique, light-colored, highly reflective stone, very much like what you find on the moon's surface. So, I guess a couple of years ago, there was a Canadian astronaut named Joshua Kutrick and a NASA astronaut named Matthew Dominic. They actually are going to be members of the Artemis team going back to the moon in 2025. They did some training in Labrador at this crater, gave them the ability to identify a lot of rocks that they'll eventually see on the moon right there on the ground in that crater in Labrador. So there's a fellow who's an uh, earth sciences professor at Western University named Gordon Osinski. He's hoping that they can bring more of the astronauts training for the Artemis missions. Of course, there's uh, several of those planned, the first one for May of 2024, to bring some of those astronauts to Labrador for their training in anticipation of what they'll find on the moon when they get there. So I thought that was pretty interesting stuff. Anyway, let's keep going. So I guess there was the question asked of Premier Fury in a scrum yesterday about public safety. I'm always torn with how to talk about public safety issues because you don't want to be the person that fans the flames of fear 
regarding how much we're seeing out there on the street, whether it be notorious areas, and we've had stories about the downtown area here in St. John's and what's happening there and the incidents of violence, and there's been lots of high-profile headline-grabbing violent acts that are making their way through the courts. So the Premier was asked about it. And he went on, it's a fairly vague reference, but did say that, you know, public safety is paramount. And talking about potential investment in the RCMP and the RNC, most people will say that there's a lack of police presence, whether it be on the roads, because nothing slows you down quite like a police cruiser, and or in some of the notorious areas where we see violence erupting, and or just increased ability for law enforcement not only to do investigations behind closed doors and all the work that we don't see that the RNC and the RCMP are doing, but on the front of public safety, it looks like there might be an opportunity, and both law enforcement agencies have been calling for more people, and we can talk about it from uh, any angle that you choose, but there was a vague reference made by the Premier yesterday. Be curious to see if anything actually changes on that front. And then you know full well that there's going to be a lot of these types of crimes, whether it be stealing your money or your property, or breaking into your home, or even violent acts amongst people who maybe know each other, and all surrounding the world of drugs, illicit drugs in particular. You know, it's a difficult conversation to have, but on that front, we've had a few calls in the recent past about access to drug treatment, so addictions facilities. And there's been another one closed now, apparently up in Northwest River. It's called Apnin's House. I think that's how you pronounce it, after uh, an Hindu elder named Apnin Pone. So they had a, uh, an operation very much like some of the institutions, or pardon me, the facilities in Ontario, and they had some great successes. But now, given the fact that it's an unhealthy uh, facility because of mold and other physical damages therein, that they're closing the doors. It's been open since 2015. Hundreds of people have gone through this particular facility. About half of them completed the 90-day cycle. And then we've heard from a lady named uh, Christina Tremblett and her son who's got a serious addiction to crack cocaine, unable to get up to a treatment facility in Ontario, the one that's called Brentwood Recovery Home, which has an extensive three-month program versus what is a usual stay of 28 days or less in one of the addictions facilities here in this province. So, you know, we talk about whether it be the pandemic and whatever crisis in healthcare, but absolutely without question, across this country, we have an opioid crisis. We absolutely do. And so whether it be access or wait times, if you have to wait four to six weeks after you have the personal revelation that you want to get help, but you can't get it right away, that might send someone back into a real death spiral. And maybe they change their mind by the time a bed becomes available. So when and if you want help, we've got to make sure that we're there to get it for you. You want to take it on? As much as that is a very difficult topic, we can and should be talking about it. Let's stick with it. So January 25th. Today's Let's Talk Day. No big corporate PR surrounding it today, but it should be Let's Talk Day every day, as you know. So there are some concerns being voiced by some mental health advocates regarding the fact that when the new mental health facility is open here at the Health Sciences Complex in St. John's, that there's going to be an amalgamation, an integration of emergency room services for both mental health and physical health. Now, some advocates say that it might make it a little bit more of a difficult opportunity to present yourself to a mercy room if you find yourself in a mental health crisis. And I don't know whether or not this is a good thing or a bad thing. You know full well that the province was driven to make a decision to put that mental health facility right there uh, alongside the health sciences because as the director of uh, mental health services here in Eastern Health said, you know, health is health. And that's absolutely true. 
And it's the way we should be considering both issues, whether it's a broken leg or cancer or mental health, because health is health. But some advocates are worried that it might not be the finest solution, even though it's an effort to reduce the stigma surrounding mental illness. If you are one of the mental health advocates or have a thought on the matter or have presented that, whether it be a mental health facility at Waterford and then the diversion over to St. Clair's, and now what they're talking about, the integration of emergency room services at the health sciences complex, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. From the outside looking in, it sounds like a good idea. But if you think that it maybe will make a potentially bad situation worse for some, please do indeed join us on the program to talk about it. And yes, it is Let's Talk Day. All right, keep going. So we actually, I heard Linda Swain speak with Bob Feuer from Feuer's Ambulance Service, and we all know by now that that operation has been brought in under essential services legislation, Bill 24, which was passed in the House of Assembly, has received royal assent, and they're back to work. It really does beg the question of what the future of the ambulance service looks like, looks like in full across the various private operations and the public offerings. So that one I'll put out there. But for the folks in the Trapassi and surrounding area, Mr. Fiora, when asked by Linda Swain about the thought that in six months' time the ambulance service will be withdrawn in full from Trapassi, Mr. Fiora says that until there's an alternative found, whether it be another private operator or from a regional health authority, that there will be an ambulance in Trapassi. So hopefully that can stem some of the worries that we've heard coming from, whether it be Mayor Pennell and others out there in Trapassi. So... That's what we've heard on that front, and I think that's very encouraging news. A couple more on the quick healthcare notes. I still can't wrap my mind around these stories about people faking their credentials to work in healthcare. You know, we had Buddy who faked his credentials and he committed a crime while doing so in a long term care facility. And then this story regarding the woman known as whether it's Lisa Driscoll, Harris, Strickland, whatever, whoever, she's now been charged by the RNC. A variety of crimes. So three counts of fraud, three breaches of probation, two counts of identity theft, one count of perjury. She's also facing a count of breaching the Provincial Licensed Practical Nurses Act and one count of breaching the Registered Nurses Act. She spent time in prison for her role, convicted of negligence, causing death in Hamilton. Her four-year-old son died back in 2017. She was on probation when she was uh, faking these credentials to work in the nursing homes. So she's facing the charges. It's not only the one incident of this. So, you know, the vetting that's done if you want to work inside a public offering operated by a regional health authority, and then you wonder what it looks like in some of the more private offerings, whether it be travel nurses, and we see the potential expansion of private health care delivery, what the vetting would look like therein, because we can't have faked credentials getting you access to patients who would be obviously quite vulnerable, but she's facing those charges. She's still in the lockup waiting for a bail hearing. All right, we had Darren King, the executive director of Trades and L on the program yesterday, about what looks like messaging coming from Equinor regarding the potential business sanction of the Beta Nord project, and it looks like they're going to do virtually all the construction outside of the province. So they've launched a Build Right Here campaign. Negotiations are continuing between the province and Equinor. Of course, the province needs to give the final green light, whether that be negotiations on an equity stake or a royalty regime. And yes, what jobs should be done right here, where we have a trained, experienced workforce. Whether or not you're pro or against oil development, if this gets a sanction, then a big conversation is to be had about where the jobs are. You know, to keep the momentum going, 
to have the skilled tradespeople able to stay here in this province and to further bolster their resume, whether we look down the road at some of the wind projects or hydrogen projects or whatever the case may be. So that is a big story, and hopefully we can see the government able to negotiate some jobs, as many jobs as we can tackle here, because we've got the experience and we've got the workforce, and apparently we actually have the human beings here, the human resources, to tackle all these jobs. You know, there has been some concerns that maybe many of these tradespeople have left for, quote-unquote, greener pastures. How are we doing out there, Dave? There's a lot to talk about, and just that brief mention of wind energy, apparently the PC member and leadership hopeful uh, Tony Wakeham is coming on. I've heard some reports about some of the well water issues that are starting to rear their ugly head in the area, so we'll put that to Mr. Wakeham to see what he knows about that. So for those folks who have sent me the emails overnight, we will take that on with Mr. Wakeham. A couple of quick positive ones. Canada's list of their top 100 companies, best place to work, are out. A bunch of companies from this province have made the list. So if I've missed one, because I just gave it a quick scan, and it doesn't say for every uh, different company named whether or not they're located or founded here in the province, but it does include Blue Drop Limited, Colab Software, East Coast Credit Union, Mises Smart Thermostats, the Newfoundland Labrador Center for Health Information, Noseworthy Chapman Chartered Professional Accountants, part of this program, and Provincial Aerospace, of course, PAL, and Verifin Incorporated. Congratulations to all hands. Great stuff there. And another positive one before we go, the nominees for the East Coast Music Awards are out. All right, in this province, West Coast native, country artist Jason Benoit. He's got five nominations. The Fortunate Ones picked up three nominations. Rev Dave and the Sin Eaters and Andrew Stanland uh, picked up two each. And our program director right here at VOCN, Greg Smith, once again nominated for Media Person of the Year. Congratulations to all the nominees. Hopefully you bring home some hardware. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Oh, very quickly. So we've talked about public safety. The story coming from Ron Colley Central High in Avondale. The RCMP were called to the school, but the story has been given very little detail. You know, the district will cite privacy concerns, but I'm hearing a lot of stories. And just like when we don't get the facts, whether it be from the RCMP or from the school district, the stories have now grown and escalated, whether or not it's an exaggeration or people are really unsure of exactly what happened. But the stories I'm hearing, it was a fairly serious issue. So we can talk about that type of story inside the province's K-12 system or any level of education, where if we're talking public safety, there are those concerns in schools as well. All right, we're on Twitter. Email address is openlinefeocm.com. But let's have a great show because you're in the queue to talk about a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on the top of the board. Line number one, say good morning to John Siri with Drive Electric NL. John, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, thanks for asking. How are you doing, John? Not too bad. I wanted to talk a little bit about our concerns raised by the consumer advocate and EV charging infrastructure and why we would all want to have that infrastructure around. Yeah, just so, so in case people yeah. don't know what Dennis Brown, who's the province's consumer advocate, said, he said that... You know, it's fine and dandy for to, to install chargers for electric vehicles, but he doesn't think the ratepayers generally should be on the hook for it. So it's about a $3 million price tag at this moment in time, and he thinks that if it's going to be done, it should be done by the private sector, So that just so we can set the stage. Sure, sure. And I, I get where he's coming from, but there's a few corrections there. First of all, it wasn't a $3 million price tag for the, the ratepayers. Uh, Ottawa is currently financing about half the cost of these, 
uh, types of infrastructure. And we really, really need to take advantage of that money while it's here. Because, I mean, eventually we'll get to a stage where we're really wishing we had more infrastructure, and then we're paying for it all ourselves. So that price tag of $3 million is actually, it's about half of that was what was uh, responsibility of the people here in the province. Uh, the thing to remember, though, is the ratepayers are also the same people that are really, really burdened with the high price of gasoline for our cars. I mean, this is this is skyrocketed, and gasoline prices don't show any sign of coming down. That's money that's going straight out of the province every year, year after year. The easiest solution for this is to get yourself into an electric car. And if you make your next car electric, the first thing you're going to want to do is know what charging infrastructure is there for the odd time you take a long trip across the province. So if you're saying that you're helping the ratepayers, well, help the ratepayers pay more, you know, start to buy some more power for their electric cars as opposed to just being burdened and burdened with gasoline prices. Well, I mean, the comment on a caller yesterday did indeed make the same observation that all the money spent, if we're talking about charging the electric vehicle, stays in the province versus all the money that's spent to fuel our internal combustion engines, whether it be with gasoline or diesel, that's all leaving for the most part. Of course, some stays in the hands of some of the retail outlets, but by and large, most of that money and certainly the big bulk of the profit does leave the province. You know, I suppose I should have put it to... Mr. Brown, in this light as well, is at what point would it become, you know, a ratepayer issue on his perspective? Because at some point there's going to be a critical mass where you will see electric vehicles catch up. And in some countries they're catching up very, very quickly. Not so much here in this province, but I guess at some point there will be a critical mass where, you know, if people are going to make decisions about whether or not my next vehicle is a hybrid or a full-on electric vehicle, I need to know that what I do normally, whether it be travel for work or pleasure, I'm going to be able to have convenient access to charging stations. The the number one reason, I'll, I'll say selfishly, the number one reason why I'm going to consider an electric vehicle is simply the cost of operation. You know, it's I understand the emission controls and what have you, but I have friends with electric vehicles. Their cost to operate versus my cost to operate makes it pretty much a no-brainer. Yeah, yeah, and you, you've hit the nail on the head, Patty, for sure. Some some things to consider. Yeah, electric vehicle owners are rate payers. I am a rate payer. I've been a rate payer with electric vehicles for the whole family for seven years. Uh, and that number, while low right now in the province, if you look at the adoption curves anywhere else, in very short order, we are going to consume more power uh, in our electric vehicles in this province than any of the large consumers across the province. So, you know, if you if you had another long harbor setting up or if you had another refinery or another pulp and paper mill setting up in a few short years, would the consumer advocate be there saying, no, 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 we can't look at putting in the infrastructure that we need to to uh, to accommodate the load that's coming on here and welcome that opportunity to sell our power domestically at a much, much higher price than the current plan of exporting what we don't use, which is, uh, you know, not really bringing in the kind of money that this power is worth. The the other thing to consider, though, Patty, is that a lot of people are saying, well, that's great, you know, you're around in your expensive EVs, but those cars are becoming more and more affordable. And right now, the average cost of a new car in Canada has passed $50,000 last September. The base model Tesla, even the base model Tesla now comes in under 50000 after your rebates. 
So this isn't a case of, well, that's all very you know, well and good if you want to buy a $100,000 car. There's lots and lots of options now that are on par with gas cars. Even you know the dealerships here, some of the dealerships here are starting to bring these in so that we can get that option here. And this is, you know, this is an option to keep the money here in the province, save the consumers of the province lots of money, and the adoption curve is going to show that in the next few years. That's going to look everybody's going to look at this and say, why weren't we putting in the chargers when we could get the money from the federal government to do so? Yeah, taking advantage of matching dollars is always a good idea, I think, regardless of what we're talking about. Some people are sitting back and waiting and watching the the change in innovation and technology utilized in these vehicles, whether it be how long uh, you can drive, the uh, how quick it takes, how quick you can charge the battery, how far you can drive on a full charge, reliability, lifespan of a battery, flammability, all of those things. Where are we in the innovative world? Because, you know, nothing is perfectly clean in this world because you have to mine the lithium for a lithium-ion battery. But then you hear, like, Toyota talking about a full solid-state battery coming out maybe as early as 2025. So how quickly is the innovation changing to make them more reliable and consequently enticing for the consumer? I've got friends with 500,000 kilometers on their electric cars. I've seen examples of ones that have done over a million uh, kilometers on them. Uh, you know, the, the technology has been here for a while. What we're doing now is fine-tuning. I mean, there's always room for great big strides, for sure. Lithium can be extracted from unused oil wells. They've got that technology working now in, in Canada. So, uh, you know, <laughs> imagine the possibilities of taking all the abandoned orphaned oil wells and turning them into lithium mines. You know, that's there. We've got an abundance of hydroelectric power coming online in this province. I mean, we're, we're, we're perfect for EV adoption here. Uh, charging speeds, I mean, as I came across Canada, I stopped at chargers. That gave me enough time to go for a bathroom break and pick up a sub sandwich but not eat it before we were charged and ready to go again. And that's the kind of chargers that, uh, you know, Minister Davis has indicated that this province is going to start installing as the next round of chargers. Uh, at key points across the province. So, I mean, these these sorts of things have become non-issues as we expected. Um, you know, most people in this province do less than 50 kilometres a day. You can do that in any EV that's ever been sold without having to go to any of these public chargers. But the investment, the size of the investment here, uh, the consumer advocate was wrong. Uh, Three million wasn't the number. About half of that was covered by Ottawa. Uh, it's such a tiny amount in comparison to what is spent to bring electricity to the consumer here. It's one more piece of equipment, just like the transformer and the poles and the distribution that's there already, just to get more electricity into the hands of the people who are paying for it. And these fast chargers, we do pay to use them. They're not free. We pay quite a fair, fair premium on the power to use them. They do make a profit. Uh, it's just that the number of EVs that are here is going to take a little while to catch up to the point where you'd get a return on investment as fast as private industry would like. Uh, once we have a few more EVs on the road, which I see in the next you know, 12 to 18 months, you're going to start seeing a lot of private operators popping up. But that's not going to happen if we don't get our utilities putting in the coverage that's needed to start the process right now. And that's 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 shown again and again everywhere across Canada and around the world. John, what type of investment do I have to make at home to charge my electric vehicle? The charger that goes into your house, we, we sell them at the resource center. They start at around $750, and your electrician cost might be somewhere between, say, 500 and and 1000 depending on what you need. Uh, once that's in there, that's a one-time install, 
you're good to go with any electric vehicle that you want to operate and that's it you can charge yours or, or your friend's ev too if you want to come over same as sharing your wi-fi i appreciate the time this morning john any final thoughts before we say goodbye by all means drop on down to the electric vehicle resource center the drive electric resource center on pippi place we're happy to tell anybody that wants to get into electric vehicle answer any questions that they have and i'm also happy to say that we started doing our first responder electric vehicle training here and there around the province as well as our continuing our program to bring electric vehicle information to the schools. So if that's something that interests you, drop by the Resource Centre and, and talk to our people there and see what we can arrange to do for you. I appreciate you making time with the show, John. Stay in touch. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Yes, bye-bye. It's John Seary from Drive Electric. And uh, let's try to stay half on time for breaks today. When we come back, the PC member for Stephenville Port Report is Tony Wakeham. I think we're probably going to talk about Bill 24, the essential services legislation associated now with fewer's ambulance operations. And we have had some concerns voiced from residents in Port of Port about water quality. We'll hear from Tony after this. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port. The second person to put his name in the hat to be the next PC leader, of course, alongside Lloyd Parrott. That's Tony Wakeham. Hi, Tony. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Uh, I'm on my way back to my district this morning. I'm driving across the province. What I wanted to call in to talk about, as you suggested, Bill 24, but I will also talk about the issues that are happening in, uh, in my district in terms of the water piece. But I... You know, the fact that we had to be called back to the House of Assembly to deal with this uh, essential workers piece, you know, begs the question, why wasn't it done before? It should have been done in the fall sitting. It could have been done in the fall sitting. Instead, the government waited. So now that we have this in place, this, as I've described it, is is a Band-Aid and a necessary Band-Aid. However, it doesn't fix the system. It doesn't do anything to change the working conditions or the response times. And for too long now, government has sat back. There have been numerous reports prepared on the ambulance system in this province. The Auditor General did a review. Uh, Deloitte did a review. Ernst Young did a review. Then we had the, the FITS report, and uh, the FITS report, rather. And now we have the Health Accord. And the Health Accord has been described as a 10-year plan. But their focus right at the beginning, in year one, was to have a common, high-quality ambulance service as a fundamental pillar. That's exactly what they said. And so there are no more excuses. We need to get on with this. And I would suggest that the Minister of Finance and the Premier ensure that while the budget is being developed right now, for this coming fiscal year, there needs to be included in that budget the action plan that's actually going to see that happen. I understand the point that, I mean, nothing really changed in the overall delivery of health care with this essential services bill, Bill 24. But, of course, it was very solely focused on one particular issue. So I'm not so sure how it could have addressed the big scheme of things regarding legislation. I don't think it's an unfair criticism to say it could have been done earlier because we've been talking about the disparity between public and private ambulatory services for years and years. So this needed to be done. If you had your druthers, what does the ambulance service look like? 
We've also been waiting for the province to paint that picture for us. Are we going to see a big multinational company come in here and take over the whole kit and caboodle? Will they all be under regional health authorities? Will it all be a private offering, splintered like we have today with the various uh, business owners operating ambulances? If you were able to craft legislation and guide the future of ground ambulance in particular, what does it look like? Well, I think the fundamental principle has to be that regardless of where you live in Newfoundland and Labrador, Everyone should have equitable access to uh, ambulance services. And the frontline providers should have equitable training and career opportunities. So they're not held back because of where they serve. That has to be the fundamental principle. Our system needs a central dispatch, and it needs to be integrated. Now, what that looks like, how many providers, uh, that's to be determined. But the first thing we need is those standards. And that's, that's the key here is to get this going. The central dispatch is essential, so no longer other territories. The idea being that the closest ambulance to you will be the one that will be dispatched to you. So the straight-up hub-and-spoke model. Correct. But what we need is, is basically, the idea is that right now in our province, we've had a system that was based on territories. And there was a potential in the past where, you, where an ambulance could be 10 minutes away from you Another one thirty, but because the ten minute ambulance is outside of it, you were outside their territory, you'd have to wait for the thirty minute ambulance. That's not good enough. And that needs to change. I think everybody's in favor of this. I think what we have is we have, you know, private operators who are frustrated, the paramedics are frustrated, the people in the province are frustrated. And they want government to move on and let's start this process. The health accord has laid out a plan. Let's get the plan moving. Yeah, just because something is a 10-year roadmap doesn't mean all the recommendations therein are 10 years uh, on the shelf before they get implemented. So there is room. And now I think the impetus is there to fast-track whatever the move is going to look like for paramedicine here in the province. I mean, the worst-case scenario is, you know, not just on rate of pay, but the burnout that they're experiencing. We can't lose any more paramedics. We simply cannot. The stories come fast and furious in my email inbox, and I'm sure the same for you and your colleagues. So we can't have that present itself. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and part of that whole principle, too, when it comes to paramedics, is the idea of scope of practice. We've talked a lot about scope of practice, too. Sure. And I told I told the story in the house about my own father, who, in these late years, the last couple of years, has, couldn't live by himself. So he lived with my sister. He didn't go to long-term care. My sister wasn't a health care worker. So there were times when Dad would go through, you know, whether it was shortness of breath or other seizures or whatever, my sister called an ambulance. And I could tell you a couple of times, those paramedics came to her house and were able to check the dad's oxygen levels and other vital signs. And he did not have to make that trip. To They reassured my sister and were able to ensure that my dad was fine and he didn't have to go by ambulance and sit or lie for 10 hours in an emergency department waiting to be seen. I think there's a tremendous opportunity for paramedics in this province to be doing that all over Newfoundland Labrador. Yeah, I mean, maximizing scope of practice is important across all the disciplines, but given where we are, there's also, you know, adding more to the plate. That might require incremental addition versus, because at this moment, I'm not so sure we've got a workforce that can handle a whole lot more, given the numbers of paramedics that are currently working in the province. Okay, before we run out of time, Tony, what do you know about the water quality issues in Port of Port? Well, I've had uh, lots of conversations with people on the Port of Port Peninsula, and the challenge they have right now 
is the government is not responding to their to their request. They've written the government and they've asked for them to come out and meet with them. They're concerned about uh, their watersheds and, and what's going to have the impact of the project they have on them. So on Monday in the House, I spoke to both the on the floor of the House. I spoke to both Minister Bragg from Crown Lands and Minister Davis. Both of them assured me that they would have their officials call people in the communities and speak to them about these issues. And I'm going to hold them to that. And I hope those calls will be made because the watershed issue is a real issue. And all people want, they have legitimate concerns and they want answers. This project, whether it goes ahead or doesn't, will government are the ones responsible for that. But there's been no sign of government taking that responsibility. And that's been some of the frustration. They've met with the companies. I've met with them. But what they want is they want their government to come out or at least call them and tell them so they can talk to them directly about what their concerns are and what are some of the solutions. But they need government to be part of that process. Yeah, I would imagine they need more than the call. They need testing then to try to draw a line or find the cause of this. People are pointing the finger directly at some of the prep work to be done for if World Energy GH2 ever gets off the ground. Is that the same thing you're hearing? And if so, that requires more of, more than a call. That requires some real investigatory work to take place on the ground, doesn't it? Absolutely. And it starts with calling them to, get to set that up because that's been the whole problem. There's been no communication and no regular monitoring. Like, we're not saying that somebody from government has to be standing every day, but they need to be there monitoring this. You know, they're the ones that have put the environmental impact assessment process in place. Government needs to be out there and seeing what's actually happening because the people are telling government what's happening. They're telling me what's happening. And they need somebody out there to supervise that, as you suggest, and to do the testing and ensure them of what action will be taken to protect their watersheds. Uh, Tony, appreciate the time. Safe travels on the way across the island. Thank you, Tony. You're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. It's Tony Wakem. There's uh, the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port, and he'd like to be the leader. Uh, am I going to 5-6 here now, David? Is that what we should do? Okay. We're going to the break. Is that what you want to do here first? Okay, so there's... Been a lot of talk. I think last week was a smoking cessation week and the opportunity for people to quit and some of the tools available to them. We do know that in this province, more people smoke well in advance of the uh, national average. So coming up on line numbers five and six from Munn School of Pharmacy, Dr. Leslie Phillips and Dr. Kathy Balsam to talk about that. And then we'll speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Joining us on the line is uh, Dr. Kathy Balsam, Dr. Leslie Phillips from Munn School of Pharmacy and the Medication Therapy Services Clinic at Munn School of Pharmacy. Good morning to you both. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Daddy. Good morning, Dr. Phillips as well. Good morning. So I think it's the first time you and I have spoke. Is it Dr. Phillips? Uh, no, Patty. Actually, I'm a second-time caller. Oh, terrific. Welcome back. <laughs> and, of course, Dr. Balsam is a repeat offender here on the program. So <laughs> off we go. Here in the province, uh, the prevalence of smoking is starting when compared to the national average. Newfoundland and Labrador, about 65,000 smokers, represents about 15% of the population. National average, much closer to 10%. Lots of reasons as to why that is, but you just came back, Dr. Phillips, from the Ottawa Model of Smoking Cessation Conference. Where do we start in encouraging or helping uh, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians quit smoking? Because it's an arduous task for most. It is, uh, Patty, and, and for most smokers, you know, quitting smoking is the hardest thing they'll ever do. 
but yeah, we suffer from what I'm going to call a prevention inertia in this province when it comes to to uh, chronic diseases. We're reactive. We put about 90%, uh, 97% of our efforts and our money into treating disease and about 3% into prevention. And I mean, when you look at our province, we have the highest of all the provinces rate, we got the highest rate of morbidity and mortality due to lung cancers, heart disease, COPD. We have the highest rate of smoking, which is the leading preventable cause of all those illnesses. So we got 65,000 smokers. We got to reach them, and you know um, we have to reach them, and we have to have we have to have programs that find the smokers, but also programs that are effective that help them quit. The reference is tobacco usage is uh, the primary cause for about 20% of hospital admissions, the most expensive thing in the country. Uh, second only, or pardon me, it's either first or second, a night in the clink or a night in the hospital. Okay, so Dr. Balsam. What role does the pharmacist play? Because there's lots of different tools out there, cessation aids, whether it be gums and otherwise. So what can a pharmacist do on this front? Yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunities here for pharmacists. And, you know, not only at our clinic here and our kind of intensive program that's run by Dr. Phillips, but community pharmacists can play a major role as well in helping people select the best option for them and, you know, really determining what, you know, is there any drug interactions? Is there a prescription agent perhaps that we think may work more in your favor that we may be able to prescribe? So there's a lot of opportunities right there for the community pharmacist. Sometimes cost is a hurdle. I remember a few years ago there was talk of, for instance, uh, low-income earners, you know, receiving free smoking cessation tools, whatever they may be. For some, when they consider whether it be the price of buying their favorite tobacco product and what might be the cost for whatever cessation tool, do you think it would make an appreciable difference if all of these tools were free? Because some of the drugs that we get prescribed to treat tobacco-caused illnesses are free. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, absolutely, Patty. And, you know, there's very clear evidence, very clear evidence, uh, that to increase the quit rate, cost-free meds are critical. And it's a best practice. Medications uh, double to triple your chance of success. And you think about it, you know, we cover uh, a cholesterol-lowering med, uh, meds for COPD, meds for hypertension, meds for diabetes, but we don't cover quit smoking meds in the same way. Um, and, you know, the plans that we do have, for example, our provincial plan, uh, there's limits. Uh, you know, and the plan, don't get me wrong, it's come a long way. But smokers still have a copay. Uh, they still have a maximum amount that they can claim. They get two 12-week quits a year, uh, you know, and uh, they have a, a, a copay that goes along with that that they don't have uh, for any other medication. So, uh, you know, I think some of this, Patty, is... We got to get out of this blaming the smoker. It's not a choice. Like it might start off as a choice, but within a month, smoking's no longer a choice. You know, when it's the dead of winter and you're out in your Johnny coat outside at the health science, freezing cold with an IV pole having a cigarette, that's not a choice. Nobody chooses that. It's an addiction, and we have to treat it 
like an addiction, and we shouldn't be expecting smokers to pay, I don't think, for their quit meds out of the money that they're going to save by stopping smoking. We don't expect them to do that with cholesterol. Do we say to people, oh, my goodness, you can pay for your cholesterol-lowering med out of the money you should be saving from not having takeout so often? It's silly. Uh, nicotine one of the most addictive properties on the face of the earth. And just a, the tip of a pin of pure nicotine is uh, absolutely lethal. Okay. So fewer youth are picking up smoking. That's the good news. And, you know, the creation of some of the vapes, uh, the vaping cigarettes, the e-cigs, for folks it might be an effective way to try to quit. But it's been the go-to for the youth that are not picking up nicotine products or, you know, traditional smokes or cigarillos or cigars. There's a lot of the e-cigs out there. So... They were deemed to be fairly innocuous not that long ago, even though we knew very little about the properties therein and what it meant for long-term damage to the body. But what's the risk associated with the e-cig? Because there's nicotine involved with some of those products. You can get the watermelon or raspberry flavor, so it doesn't have that distaste that comes with a traditional cigarette. What are the risks associated with the e-cigs, and what does it mean long-term for you to pick them up? Yeah, so uh, I, I could talk about e-cigs all day, but, uh, you know, there's a couple of points I, I want to make about that. Uh, and first of all, since the introduction of e-cigs into Canada, uh, this has not led to increases in smoking cessation rates. So there's no evidence at a population-level impact that e-cigs have changed the number of quit attempts over time. But what it has led to, Patty, as you've alluded to, is an increase in youth uptake and nicotine addiction. And Canada has the highest youth vaping rates in the world. And, uh, you know, uh, the rate is probably um, about um, 17%. Uh, in um, 15 to 17 uh, percent in, in uh, youth and young adults um, that use vapes um, fairly regularly. And there's new data that came out um, at the conference that shows that 11.6 percent of high school st students in Canada are now vaping daily. So while the overall rate, and, they're, and of course they're way higher in Newfoundland, 36% of our youth have tried e-cigarettes, 16% uh, in the past uh, have used an e-cigarette in, in the past 30 days. What, is, what came out of this conference is the fact that the way that youth are using e-cigarettes has changed, and they're now using them daily, and they're using them multiple times throughout the day, 34% of our youth are vaping continuously throughout the day. And the reason for that, Patty, is the nicotine. These products have a special type of nicotine in them called a nicotine salt, which allows you to consume way more nicotine um, very smoothly so it doesn't irritate your throat. Uh, so they have these products. They have huge amounts of nicotine in them. Uh, they have come in these beautiful, little, bright-colored little, uh, you know, they look almost like a USB stick, um, you know, cool-looking devices. Uh, they've got all these fruit flavors. You can match your e-cigarette to your outfit. Uh, and they're really going after youth. And what has particularly changed of late is this new type of uh, vape, which is a disposable vape, which they're really going after uh, youth uh, to use. Uh, Puff Bar, um, Elf Bar are, are huge. And in Canada, it's it, Views Go and Views Go XL. And these have tremendous amounts of nicotine, uh, Patty. The Views Go XL has got 96 milligrams of nicotine. That's 96 cigarettes. 
And how long does that thing last? Because I know well, the nicotine per cigarette is maybe it's a couple of milligrams per. Yeah, one to two. Yeah, I mean, I have uh, youth that'll go through that in a day. So, you know, and they're always shocked when I tell them, youth and young adults mostly who I have that are vaping, and they're always shocked to find out how much nicotine uh, they're vaping. So, you know, uh, mostly um, it's been between about 40 milligrams, and I've had one individual up to 168 milligrams of nicotine. You know, in the world, uh, the the lobbying against the tobacco industry, I think it's in 1963 that the then Minister of Health stood in the House of Commons and declared that smoking caused lung cancer. That was even a year before the United States Surgeon General did the exact same thing. Then we went through the decades of fighting about labeling, and Du Maurier couldn't sponsor the golf tournament, Rothmans couldn't sponsor the race, and then we put warnings on the labels, and we made took away the bright-colored packaging and put it all fairly gray, black, with big warning labels and pictures, hide them behind uh, cupboards in the store versus how the smoking display was the first eye-catching thing you saw when you walked in the store. Vastly different in the uh, the e-cigarette world. Is it simply a matter of following government's path with traditional tobacco, with these e-cigs to try to get some controls in place? Because it did have, you know, it did play a role. Education campaigns, labeling, hiding them, and uh, syntaxes associated with them, as opposed to what is a very glitzy, glossy looking opportunity to buy vape at the store yes and let's be clear guess who owns the vapes the tobacco companies oh sure yeah yeah we got to hold them more accountable um you know and uh frankly our governments have to do more we've got to start regulating these products better than we have so um a couple of years ago with the tobacco and vaping act uh, they lowered the amount of nicotine that you can put in a product, but of course, the youth are just vaping more. Uh, they were supposed to ban all flavors except for tobacco and nicotine in these uh, in e-cigarettes. That was supposed to happen over a year ago. Um, I don't know what has happened with that initiative. It seems to be uh, dead in the water. So. Um, you know, we have to regulate them more. And it's really interesting, you know, um, if these products are supposed to be so great for quitting smoking, not a single e-cig manufacturer has come to Health Canada to make an application for their products to be used as a smoking aid because they don't want to be regulated, Patty, because they're making too much money. Uh, Kathy, has there been one tool or another that's proven to be the most effective when it comes to quitting smoking? Because people either uh, use the Nicorette gum or someone might go and decide to get hypnotized. Is there something that seems to work better than others? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know that there are quit rates. I mean, if you quit cold turkey, there's, you know, some chances that you may be able to maintain that quit. You know, some people do, um, but we know that there are better options. And using nicotine replacement just as needed helps. But we know combining, you know, long-term nicotine replacement, like something like a patch along with the gum works even better. Using some of the prescription drugs works better. But we know any of these options works way better when paired with counseling, right? And that's another thing that pharmacists can do. So not only just picking your product, but then there to support you over, you know, the process of this quit journey because it's not going to happen overnight and there are going to be struggles along the way. So if you partner the, you know, nicotine replacement or prescription drug component along with the counseling, you're going to have a much better chance of success. 
I appreciate you both making time for the program. A little late for the news, but here's a note from Gail on my Twitter feed. Dr. Phillips and Dr. Balsam were instrumental in helping me quit smoking almost six years now, forever grateful for their program. So there's some instant feedback. Awesome. Congrats to Gail. Good to have you both on. Thank you, Dr. Leslie Phillips and Dr. Kathy Balsam from Mons uh, School of Pharmacy and, of course, at the Medication Therapy Services Clinic at Mons School of Pharmacy. Nice speaking with you this morning. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Here we go. Uh, so if any of those tips there or advice coming from the, the two good doctors is going to be helpful for you. Terrific. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Jim, you're next. We had Darren King from Trades NL on the program yesterday. Jim wants to respond to what he heard from Darren King, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number two. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Yes. Uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Pleasure. Uh, Patty, I was listening to your program yesterday morning, and uh, Darren King came on, and you were talking to him about, uh, you know, uh, the resources in Newfoundland and work and things like that. And I just wanted to acknowledge some of the good points that he made. And uh, the battle that, that, that Darren is dealing with right now is a battle that we've uh, been dealing with uh, ever since the offshore uh, started in Newfoundland, you know, from Hibernia right on through to uh, Equinor doing the project that they're, uh, they're talking about do, doing right now. And uh, to acknowledge uh, Darren's points, uh, well, it is our resource. There's no question about that. And I don't think there's any argument there, there with that. Uh, also, I mean, here in Newfoundland, the cost of doing business is the cost of doing business. That's the, that's the same with anywhere in the world. Nobody needs to get their head around that. It's the fact of the matter. The workforce there that we have here locally, as Darren pointed out once again, there's no question that we have the ability to do the work. That don't mean that we can't improve and learn new skills and do things better. Absolutely. But we have what it takes to put the, the projects together. So and all we have to do with that is look at Hibernia. And the same questions were uh, arose from Hibernia or the naysayers were saying at the time, too expensive, too this, too that, and all that, that sort of thing. But yet, it's off on the Grand Banks now, heading into its second billion barrels of oil. So what a success story. Everybody can jump on board of that. The turnover, well, it, 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 we did have significant work, work from that when it come in Bulan for the uh, mechanical outfitting and things like that, and it meant a lot to the, to the workers there and to the, to, the, to the province, you know, with wages and things like that. So that uh, uh, proved itself. It going to, to Spain. When we had the local workforce here who could do the work well, I'm still chewing on that. The, the, the provincial government, I think, sacrificed around $350 million to, uh, to keep the project afloat. And here it's over in Spain today, and we don't even get an update of where it is. You know, so anyway. Uh, well, it's almost uh, back. You know, it set sail from Spain quite a long time ago. It might even be back here, but not in operation yet. It cost us dearly to see Terranova resume uh, production out there. And I think there's a school of thought that, I mean, I don't know how quickly the world is going to change, but even if you hear or read between the lines from the fer current federal minister responsible, Stephen Gibo, it's going to be harder and harder for any of these oiled opportunities to ever see production. So this might be one of the last, if not the last, possibly, off our shores. And I don't know what the future holds, nor does anybody else realistically. Well, but well Petty, if I could just interject with that, look at what Germany has done. Well, they may not may not be so quick to make a statement like that. I mean, they cut out their nuclear power and all that sort of thing. And where are they now? 
they're in a bit of a crisis, and it seems to be resolved in the short term. But what's going to happen long term? But Patty, like uh, those, those are broad questions, and obviously need to be uh, be discussed about like on a on a worldwide uh, view. And we need to have the view that does things better for the planet and all that. But we can't do foolish things or things that we can't adjust to and all that stuff. So over time, yes, absolutely, all those things have to be looked looked at. But right now, like let, let's just concentrate a little bit on the Equinor project. Well. If any, if any company or group of people would have uh, so, some understanding of where we are, when the, when the North Sea started in early days, the Norwegians weren't too happy with what the international companies were done, and they had to put rules and regulations in place that said, "Hey, our people count here. We got to get the work, we got to get the benefit, and all these things." And look at the success that they've had. Well, we're still fighting that battle, battle Patty. We are still at this day after the projects we've had, and they've been sparse. There's no question about that. It cannot be compared to the North Sea. But people made right decisions over, over in Norway, and we need to make some right decisions. And I would just leave you with, with this, Patty, or uh, two points before I go. Just I'll leave you with this. The best thing any government can do for its people and uh, uh, the, the people in the, in the community is to put them to work at meaningful employment because what that does, that, that improves their family. They, they can have a prosperous life. They can have the things that we all expect in, in, in the, way, the way we live. So that's a good thing. So no government got to, to kick around too much about uh, will, I, will I put some people out here to work or not. That's a win situation. Also, to Darren King, Darren, you did a, a great job, and I'm glad he came on, and I, I know he's got a battle that's going to go out into to the, to the future and to keep the politicians' uh, uh, heels to the fire. We need the work. Our, 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 our people in our province deserve the work. So let's get on that page and get our politicians on side with us and the companies and the contractors that want to do this work. We bring something to the table. We're not looking for something for nothing. We own the resource. We have the abilities. Let's do it. Yeah, I mean, the point I was making regarding how many more oil projects would be, and the immediacy of concern in Germany, of course, is the lack of natural gas coming from Russia. So that's their immediate concern. And, and of course, you know, they made a very quick move to some alternative sources of energy, a lot of wind, which came with a lot of hurdles and a lot of uh, cost consternation. So, yes, I mean, there's opportunities here. And the comparison to the North Sea, I get where you're coming from on that front. But, of course, they took the bull by the horns in Norway. They had a lot of state-owned and operated production offshore. And in addition to that, they created a whole second industry of research and development and testing facilities onshore, which created enormous wealth and tons of jobs. So a little bit of a different state of affairs there. You know, we would max out equity at around 10% would be the government's hope, and that's at least what they say, as opposed to, like, for instance, Stad Oil. Now that we're talking about Beta Nord and Equinor, formerly Stad Oil, they had the vast majority of equity in all the production that they did in the North Sea. So they created that sovereign wealth that I think is somewhere in the neighborhood of a trillion dollars, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, which, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, I mean, Patty. So, like, on a smaller scale, they won the battle that we're still fighting. You know, and that's so, so. So these projects have to benefit the the local people and get as much. So all I would say uh, to anybody is, look, utilize the local workforce, and local people to the fullest extent you can. Don't cut them out of the project. Don't cut them out of the projects. We need those those uh, the, the work and uh, to 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 hone our abilities and to to have the prosperity that comes from having oil and things like that that on your door. So that that's not that that's the battle that we're dealing with. It seems Nor Norway has won won that battle, 
Anyway, so uh, not wanting to take up too much of your time, Patty. Just say to Darren King and the people that sit around the table with him to continue that fight. It's a fight that needs to be fought every day, and we got the we got to get the politicians on, on our side to put people to work. And uh, you know that's that's not an outrageous ask, Patty. I appreciate the time, Sony Jim. Thanks for this. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. All right, uh, let's keep going before we get to the break. Line four, Bruno, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Morning. How how are you today? Ah, not too bad, thanks. How about you? Oh, not too bad. Uh, I wanted to talk to you first about uh, yesterday. A group of uh, concerned scientists, the atomic scientists, uh, that formed in 1947 and included uh, Albert Einstein, uh, that uh, set the doomsday, what they called the doomsday clock to show what they felt was how close we were to nuclear Armageddon. They set it at uh, 17 minutes to midnight, I think, in 1947. When they set it, uh, they've reset it several times recently, and they moved it yesterday from 100 seconds to midnight to 90 seconds to midnight. So I see. I beg your pardon? I said, so I see. I saw that story. Yes. Um, so it's a, a frightening prospect, the warnings from these uh, nuclear scientists, that... Um, it's all reflective of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine regarding the potential and the saber-rattling of whether it be strategic nuclear armament and or the major warheads that... We all were familiar with when the Cold War was being fought politically and on the ground. Okay, so the doomsday clock, 90 seconds to midnight. Scary, really. But. Yes, and um, so we, we've got, to, it, it's also, as you pointed out, uh, increased the, the problems with, uh, or I did, with climate change and addressing those issues and uh, other global concerns. So it's generally uh, a frightening prospect and a warning uh, from these people that we should uh, pay close attention to what's going on. Now, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was uh, Equinor. And as you know, they're the part owner of Beta Nord, your last caller was pretty gung-ho about um, going full steam ahead with it and I have been warning that we've got to put the brakes on full on if we want to be part of a global community and be responsible and not just uh, uh, ignoring what we're doing to the planet we see part of uh, Newfoundland and Labrador being ripped apart by uh, hurricanes. Right, but Jim and Darren King, they're, they're full bore on the fact that if this project gets the eventual approval provincially here, and if that's the case, 
the hope is that when that comes to pass, if it comes to pass, that jobs are also created here for the tradespeople who have experience in the in the field, as opposed to it's not just all well. Every single drop off our shores, whether it be oil or gas or whatever, must be produced. And if not, we've ruined the provincial economy. X, Y, and Z. The push right now is that if this project happens, we're hoping that it creates some jobs. But didn't you hear you mention this morning that there's no plan for any of the jobs? Uh, and the work to be done uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador, that in fact you're once again again going to be treated like a purely like a colony where uh, the, the wealth is extracted. That's the worry, uh, Bruno. Your... That's why they're talking about it. Yeah, well, I mean, why even engage is the question when you're, when the, that's the risk. Why are you taking a risk on doing that and, and not moving? into the future by investing heavily in wind, wind that will benefit the residents of Newfoundland and Labrador. There's, the world energy, GH2, is a, is a scam, I'm afraid. Well, maybe you know, it is, but there's not even a domestic wind project being considered, as far as we can tell. Oh, yeah, because all these other things are clouding the issue. No, they, anybody who wanted to make that type of proposal was absolutely uh, a- able to do so. Whether or not there was going to be an appetite for uh, taking it on provincially is a fair question. Whether or not it could be part of backing up our contractual obligations to our partners, we'll call them, Nova Scotia Power and Amera on the other side of the Maritime Link. So, well, I haven't even heard of a plan. And, of course, we do indeed, regardless of whatever becomes of that plagued project on the Churchill River that we call Muskrat Falls, at some point... You know, the province has done a lot to move away from using fossil fuels in full for even just heating our homes. We rely a lot on uh, hydroelectricity in this province, and there's lots of problems that comes with that. We all understand it. You know, one of the motivations was to see the decommissioning of Holyrood. That doesn't look like it's happening anytime soon, given, I mean, just look what they did for a $522 million investment to add an eighth generating station out at Beta Spare. So... I mean, I don't know what's going to happen with this Econor project, and I do know that there's not one single project, fossil fuel or otherwise, being considered by the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada at this moment in time, so the future is very unclear. Well, and I mean, they say they're going to uh, go in lockstep with Norway's uh, uh, direction that they've given to Equinor of no... of. Uh, zero net emissions by 2050 and a 20% reduction by 2030, except that they found that uh, already what's on the books is going to increase uh, their emissions by 22% by 2030. So they're going to run into that. And if we are going to, in theory, uh, follow Equinor's lead, uh, we can't possibly uh, do... Uh, new projects in Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, we got to stop pretending that uh, there's some magic bullet. Uh, you know, uh, first of all, we, Equinor at least, is acknowledging and including downstream emissions from their production, which Canada and Newfoundland and Labrador has yet to do. I mean, how can you develop oil and gas? Uh, All right. I mean, everybody understands downstream emissions. I don't know why you always say those things. Uh, that we've never considered that. Everyone's considered that. It's, well, they're know. not dealing with them. I mean, they're not, they're not considering them. Everybody else, including Norway now, is including the downstream emissions. Why aren't we? Fair enough. Uh, appreciate the time, Bruno. After the break, I go. Thanks for this. Hope you're doing okay. 
Yeah, yeah, I hope so too. And just keep remembering that tick, 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 tick. We're ninety seconds away now. Well, I got another hour and a half of the show, so I need ninety minutes at least. <laughs> I hope we get that much. Thanks, Bruno. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Steve's there to talk about long-distance calling. All right, don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go line number five. Steve, you're on the air. Morning, Paddy. How are you doing? Great today. Thanks for asking. How about yourself? Good, good. Long time no speak, that's for sure. It has been a while, Steve. Good to talk to you, Chef. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The reason I was calling today is uh, regarding my service provider uh, for uh, TV, and um, uh, which is Rogers, which is have a great service and everything else. And now they're having a merger with uh, with Shaw's, I hear. And uh, in the latter part of last year, I was having an issue with uh, with my TV, and uh, they've always been great for service and still are. Uh, but during my conversation with them, they was trying to well, they were upgrading me to if I wanted to go to Ignite, Ignitey, and uh, anyway, they sold me on it, but I said I wanted the same thing as what uh, I presently had with my landline, my phone, my, uh, uh, as a phone, and um, my TV, and, uh, and of course, the internet, and um, so anyway, they hooked it all up, and everything's going tickety-boo, and um, then I started getting the bills. They told me what price it was going to be, and it seemed to fluctuate a little bit, and uh, everything's online now, and I think like most people, sometimes you look at them, sometimes you don't. So anyway, three months went by, and I see all this going up and down. It wasn't a lot, maybe $20 or $25 or something like that each month indifference. Anyway, then I started to look at it closely, and then I started to see all these long-distance charges on there for my phone, my landline. And uh, my long distance is primarily to England, and to Ontario, and, and I see this, and I'd never had it before. And of course, we've had this service with them for, for X amount of years, you know, that's for sure. And um, so anyway, I phoned them up yesterday, and, uh, and, you know, when you phone people up, you can be on the phone for an hour, you could be on there for two hours, but I wanted to get this resolved. So I was on there for a little while. Anyway, the, the young lady came on, a great service again, don't get me wrong, and uh, so I started to ask her about this long distance. Well, what I found out, my request was in the initial start was to have the same service as what I had before, but uh, my long distance wasn't put on it. And there was going to be a charge of $5 extra, which, again, I had no problem with. But then I started to ask about my long distance charges that I was getting there, because I only had local charges for this past three months. Now, if I went to phone long distance within Canada, it's 20 cents a minute. Now, not forgetting Clarenville is long distance. To England, it is 10 cents a minute. So I questioned that. Why is the difference? And she couldn't answer me. And then she said, not only that, she said, if you were to phone Australia, it's 5 cents a minute. If you are to phone Asia, it is 3 cents a minute. So where is the justification? Here we are in Canada, long distance, at 20 cents a minute, but you can phone Asia for 3 cents a minute. It doesn't make sense. It makes absolutely no sense, Steve. Uh, You know, the argument made by the telecom companies is it's the geography of Canada and the infrastructure required to connect their 8 million Canadians is why we pay so much when, you know, I think there's also part of that conversation needs to include competition. And you mentioned Rogers and Shaw. Look, the Federal Court of Appeal just overturned the Competition Bureau's request to axe that particular deal. So now it looks like it's full steam ahead. It's up to the minister now for final approval. But that's a $20 billion takeover. The Competition Bureau rightfully points out that that's going to further exacerbate the lack of competition here. They were able to find a bit of wiggle room because they needed 
Shaw to sell some of its uh, assets to Videotron in Quebec, okay. which keeps yeah. some competition alive. But we're not yeah. falling for that. It you no. know it takes the foot off the pedal for whether it be Rogers or Bell or Telus to try to be competitive. You know, with different offers for wireless, for data charge, and for long distance calling charges. Now it's all going by the wayside. We pay <sighs> so much for these services in this country. It's madness. It's unbelievable. It, it, it just came down to a hit yesterday when she started to tell me this, because normally you don't look at that stuff anyway. Sure. So, wow, you know. And, uh, you know, that extra uh, $20 a month, uh, that adds up to $200 a year to them guys in the pocket, you know. And uh, anyway, anyway, I went to $5 a minute, uh, $5 a month anyway, so to put that back onto that program. But uh, it was just mind-boggling, that's for sure. <laughs> You know, a lot of people are moving away from a landline, just like many oh, people are working. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. and moving away from traditional cable hookup for television viewing in the home, going yeah. to some of the streaming services and or just watching yeah. online. The oh, world is changing quickly, but I can't figure out a way to ditch my landline and save any money. I know, I, I can't. I can't. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it, it's because my mother's 90. She's used to falling on the landline, and that's what it is, you know. Yeah, on my landline, it's either a telemarketer or a polling company or a scammer. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, uh, Paddy, thank you very much for your time. I'm just going to go to the airport now. Uh, apparently, one of the largest planes in the world is going to land down. It's that, uh, what is it, the Beluga or something? Yeah, the Airbus Beluga. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to go there and see it land. So uh, life is good anyway. So. I'm glad to hear that, Steve. I saw it land at Gatwick. It's quite the sight, and it looks like a flying beluga whale. It's really amazing, it does. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing it, for sure. Good to have you on, Steve. Nice to speak with you. Have a good day now. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's uh, Chef Steve Watson. I didn't know who that was until I heard his voice. So that's pretty good, of course, from uh, One Chef, One Critic fame. Absolutely. I was on with Steve. And Carl, let's see. Will I take uh, Charlie here before the break? Yeah, why not? Let's go line number six. Charlie, you're on the air. Yes, good morning. Morning. Uh, just a comment on what Bruno said there. <clears throat> Bruno must know by now, because I, I, I'm sure he's well up on this, that as far as climate change, the ship has sailed. And whether Beta Nord gets uh, uh, approved and... Uh, Going full swing, it doesn't matter in 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 the least. In fact, that's one of the reasons I'm uh, I'm for developing it, right? With China going on with the coal and and, and India and other places, and nobody really uh, making a change. What does he think Beta Nord is going to do to the overall picture? But anyway, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Well, I'll, I'll add to it. So. The, the world is not immediately done with oil as much as all the champions for reducing emissions would like to hope it would be because it's just at this moment in time, there's even some industrial and commercial applications that we haven't figured out our alternatives in full quite yet. So I understand the climate change issue. I understand the warming of the seas and the overall temperature increase and what that means and the inhabitable parts of the globe that are already happening now and it's going to be way more increase in the lack of land where people can actually live with arid conditions that we're seeing. I mean, just look on our own continent. We don't have to talk about the fact that a third of Pakistan is uninhabitable at this moment in time. Just have an eyeball on California. Have an eyeball on the southwest coast of this island. There are things that are happening right in front of us. But the fact of the matter is the global world is not done with fossil fuels. It's just not. Bruno talking about the downstream emissions. You know, the sale that Equinor had made to get final approval from Minister Gibo was about 138 different processes to mitigate emissions on site. And, of course, that does not consider the end consumer, the end product, 
for whatever oil is pumped out at Beta Nord, if it ever comes to pass. And yes, we have to consider it all, but as much as anybody would hope, if you're a climate change activist, you would hope that the world is done with fossil fuels, it's not. For better or worse, for up or down, for life or death, it's simply not. And it's got to be figured out. And I don't know how that works because I'm just not smart enough. Well, the ship has sailed. If we had taken action uh, a few decades ago, we might have had a chance. But anyway, we're we're consigned to a world of misery, mass migration. Uh, What happened on on the south coast of Newfoundland, this this is a a pinprick compared to what's going to happen around the globe. And it's certainly not a pinprick to those people down that way. But anyway, that's not why I called. But just quick on that, I want to pick up on one point. It's remarkable how some long-term considerations aren't, taken into account when we talk about political ideology and things regarding climate change. So economic migration, or pardon me, environmental migration, is going to overtake every other four of the four silos that we currently deal with with immigration in this country, whether it be refugee status and or attracting skills, trades, whatever it is. Environmentally related migrants are going to be the biggest number of migrants on the face of this earth in very short order. They're almost there. So while you think mitigation measures regarding climate change are stupid or unnecessary, not you, people who uh, think and talk that way, they are also at the same time talking about the problems associated with immigration. Well, you're going to get both. It's a long-term consideration that's not put into the same sentence or paragraph. Patty, those are good points. You've taken up some of my time, so you've got to give me a bit extra, right? <laughs> I'll see. I'll, I'll think about it as used cock. Go ahead, Charlie. Okay. I've been sizing up the world for a long time, and uh, I won't say I've got all the answers, <laughs> but anyway, here's what I see. You combine big business, corporations, not small business like Tom was talking about. Uh, I've got no problems with small business, of course. And combine that with uh, greed with a lot of backward people, especially political parties like you have in the States, and the kinds of things you get. I'll give you two examples. 33 mass uh, shootings in the States as uh, in January this new year. We only hear of the ones with uh, 10 or so uh, killed. A mass shooting is four or more, excluding the shooter. 33. It's a war zone down there. I don't know if they're going to declare it a war zone, but, 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 but in a sense it is. They can go around with assault weapons. Anybody can buy them. 18 years of background checks to hell with that. Uh, red, uh, red flags and so on. Uh, it shows the power of, of, of gun manufacturers and their stooges, some of them in the media too, by the way. And uh, the politicians that, that go along with that. I've got people that I, I know people in the States who've got children in schools, and uh, they must worry each morning as the child goes off to school. But they're, they're rabid Republicans. They don't seem to get the connection that uh, it's Republicans with their cohorts and their buddies and big money that's hanging up that, right? I'll give you an example. Pierre Salinger's daughter was uh, attending school. I think it was in Connecticut. He was living in a rural area. And the one morning they announced that John F. Kennedy was uh, shot. Do you know the reaction of the classroom? They stood up almost to a person and cheered. She was shocked, the daughter, and uh, I won't get into the mentality of people who who do that, but that kind of speaks for itself. I'll give you another example. Uh, In 1970, ExxonMobil scientists said 
that fossil fuels are, uh, and, and carbon uh, dioxide and other uh, greenhouse gases are going to mess up the environment, uh, the atmosphere, and we're going to get an increase in temperature. Exxon, because they want to make money and because they have power and so on and they can get things through the media, they immediately put out a campaign of doubt. There's a book called Merchants of Doubt. And they, they took their own science and lied about the results of it. Now, the, 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 uh, that was done, of course, with other companies as well. But all the people that are going to die from that then, uh, uh, now and in the future, I mean, these companies should be able to account when something as blatant as that happens. But who's going to hold them to account? Nobody is a short answer. Um, you know, even for folks who think that all the talk about climate change is idiotic or they just don't think that it's even happening or man's contribution is not real, well, ExxonMobil told us it is. You know, I don't know how much more we have to say these things out loud for people to get that even companies producing these fossil fuels, they have pointed the finger inwards, privately, publicly, outwards, to talk about, look, if you plot the data points for what's happened regarding ExxonMobil's operations and worldwide issues regarding climate change, overall temperature, sea temperatures, everything, their data points line up almost perfectly. Their scientists are pretty bloody good, i got to say. So they've admitted they know what their role is in all of this. So even if you're someone who thinks that climate change is, is hocus-pocus or it's hokey, well, the companies involved don't, don't think so. So if you so, know, so if you know something and they knew the difference and then go out and say opposite, to me, that's, that's, that, that should be a crime uh, against humanity and the planet. I'll, I'll give you another example. When they fought tobacco, the tobacco companies came out big money again in the media and, and, and planted doubt about uh, causing lung cancer and so on, right? Uh, they had two scientists that work with the U.S. government, uh, Singer and Sites, I believe the name was, and they planted doubt at that time. They did the same thing with acid rain. They did the same thing with the ozone layer. And some of the same people and scientists are doing the same with... Uh, 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 the climate. So I don't know how you uh, how you get around big money, greed, and disinformation lies when it's supported by some parts of the media and uh, some political parties. I, I got three people that that, that I, I know of directly. Uh, uh, one is in my family, and two were former mayors of St. John's. They were educated people. They came out. I wondered where they got the phrase to, junk science. And that's exactly what that merchants of doubt, what these people called it at that time. So who were they reading? They were, there's educated people reading those people and believing it. I don't know, Patty. Well, tobacco, it's an interesting uh, analogy or comparison. But tobacco companies were, I don't know if this is proper to say, but held to account in the fact that they have settled lawsuits to the tunes of tens of billions yeah. of dollars uh, because they did the very same thing. They knew exactly what their harms were of yeah. nicotine, and they promoted it uh, exactly otherwise. And promote. I mean, they even, whether it be the, the camel or the Marlboro man 
or television shows which sort of romanticized smoking or everything else, tobacco drove that bus. They were the people with their hands on the wheel and their foot on the loud pedal and eventually were taken to task because they knew what they were saying and doing in advertising was absolutely patently false. And so they were taken to task. Same thing I think we've seen a little bit happen in the pharmaceutical industry. Will it happen in fossil fuel? I don't know. I really should, don't know. But should I mean, not that happen should not that happen to, to, to companies like Exxon Mobile and all the things they've caused, that's much, in, in my opinion, it'll be worse for the I'm not doing a comparison about what's tobacco. worse. I'm just talking about whether uh, people have been held to account because of what they knew versus what they said. Yes. Well, to me, they should be held to account, but again, big, big money talks. Patty, I don't know, I'd like to hand off with this. I don't know if I mentioned this on your show, but I may have or, or on, uh, when I was talking to Tim. There's a novella that was published in uh, 1898 called The uh, The Wreck of the Titan. Do you are, are you familiar with that? I am not. It was published 14 years before The Wreck of the Titanic. And uh, anybody who'd like to Google that for some interest this morning, he predicted, the writer, I forget his name now, he was a seaman, he predicted the disaster almost to a T, size of the ship, number of propellers, uh, what would happen, Number uh, people dying, uh, the, he even mentioned the number of deaths there would be, and lack of lifeboats, speed, running into an iceberg, he added almost down to uh, to, to a science. And uh, so he, he claimed afterwards he wasn't a clairvoyant. I, I, of course, believe he was. But anyway, if anybody would like to uh, uh, Google the, the wreck of the, uh, the, the Titan, you will be amazed by it. Appreciate the time, Charlie. Okay, sir. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, break time. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. We are going to line number one. Say good morning to Farmer Sam Jesso. One second here. Good morning, Sam. You're on the air. Good day, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. How about yourself? Not too bad. Could be better. Could be worse. I've, uh, I guess I'm, I'm calling about uh, our water concerns on the Port of Port Peninsula. Mm-hmm. And where I live, I live on uh, the beginning of Ship Gold, and we are taken care of by the Piccadilly Slant uh, Local Service District Water Committee, and uh, our water is not fit for human consumption. Our water will have been drilled in the 1970s. Our water has lead, and as the environment warnings is up on the site, and also is not mentioned about the coli and the other type of bacteria was done by a private source that's in our water as well. I've been hospitalized before Christmas with a with a with a water infection, with a whole water infection. It's got to do with the waters here. I didn't know what we were boiling the water before we got the warning and we're before that and drinking it and cooking with it, but I had a I ended up in the hospital and I got it was uh, Christmas Eve that night and I was bodying an emergency through an ambulance, and I was having blackouts and everything. So my water is not fit, and sometimes my water is rusty yellow. I got color of pee. I sent the video. I took a video of it anyway. And uh, and uh, we need a new water well drilled. And the, the problem in the Port Port Peninsula, especially my area, the water has been here. It's been contaminated as years. I mean, it's been problems with it as years because the well is outdated and uh and when you, we ask about it, there's no money for the drill a will. So, I mean, where's the money? You guys have been collecting money for years, and we need help or we need water. I mean, we need good drink of water. Right now, I got to drive the steaming though from a, from a get water from a source or buy it for bottled water because it's not fit to drink and it's not healthy. I mean, you'll get sick from it. 
you'll end up in the hospital like me if you drink it. And the Port of Port Peninsula, they mean it's pretty much all the Port of Port Peninsula, everybody has to truck in water because it's not fit here. I mean, it's it's been like this here a few years, right? So who and when was the most recent testing to come up with whatever problem levels of different substances, whether it be bacterial or otherwise, in the water? So when did that test, most recent test happen? Who did it? For uh, the, the lead in that, that was done by the government. When was that? Department of Health. That was done there probably about uh, a couple months ago. Okay. And for the E. coli and bacteria, that was only done a month ago. And, but that's not mentioned on their site. You go on their site, you only see lead. doesn't mention about the E. coli and the other type of bacteria. It's not mentioned because we did it with a private source. And he didn't want to disclose the information out. So, I mean, he doesn't want to get his name out. But we know it's in the water. And the water, I mean, you're getting water here. I mean, you can't, you know, it's brown. I mean, your your bathtub is brown. I mean, you go take a shower in brown water most of the time. And uh, how can we, how can we, even we're even concerned about taking baths or washing our clothes or washing our dishes with it, right? You mean that's still the bacteria still getting onto your dishes, is still getting into your clothes, still getting into your bath water? You know, you get uh, you must have heard of people getting water infections through uh, through de- uh, depends on body washes you use. I mean, it's the same thing with water. So you I mean if you don't have if you're not batting good clean water, you're going to look at infections, and that's what I ended up with, with, a, with a real bad infection. I ended up in the hospital. My temperature was up. I had to go in emergency because I go into the bathroom. I passed out, and I, I mean, and I had it, uh, my wife had to call an ambulance to get me to bring me in the hospital, and they didn't know what was going. My temperature up, and I had a whole body infection. You I mean well, water infection? So they put, they give me automatically they admitted me right away. And they start putting me on uh, emergency antibiotics. I mean, the most advanced antibiotics they got suits so to, to help fight this infection that I had. And I'm telling people, this is a public concern here at, in, in my in Ship Cove and and Piccadilly Slant or Abraham's Cove or what on the Port of Port Peninsula. It's it's a real concern about the water because I mean, water is the number one thing we need. But our water here is not fit for any human consumption. Yeah, I've here seen at- the pictures. Um, so I mean. Contaminants in water can lead to all sorts of health problems, all the way from neurological to reproductive problems, cholera, diarrhea, typhoid, hepatitis. I mean, there's all kinds of problems that can stem from uh, contaminated water. So what's the current state of the advisories in place? Is it don't drink the water, or is it simply boil order advisories, or what are you being told? Well, you mean you can't boil lead because lead, you don't take it out of the water. No, I'm just asking what the advisory is. Just tell you, no, you don't drink it. You just can't use it for human consumption. That's basically it. And we're still paying for it, even though it's not fit, right? We got an outdated, like I said, an outdated uh, well over there. And you mean the problem right now, they're drilling wells all around houses or they're drilling roads real by the road. And you know you're getting your drippings from the vehicles and snow plows and that. That all drains off and that goes into the water wells, right? You mean you should never drill a well in the well. You always got to drill above on the highest part away from any people or any, uh, any kind of dwellings at all. From any public roads, because I mean, then it's it's health hazards. And our will right now is surrounded by houses, and and you mean it's close to the road. So you mean that's probably one of the one of the problems I think that could be. I remember we're 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 next to uh, we're not that far away from Atlantic Minerals Mines, and we're not that far away from the, the old uh, formal American bases like Jerry's own site. So you mean that may all have something to do with it. So you mean our water is already polluted on the peninsula. You mean we just gotta. Get some good, reliable drilling. Some you see some guys out here to test them where we can drill and get some good water because we need good water. 
I don't know where they're going to drill it and find it to, but we need good water here because we're trucking it in right now, and we're still going to pay the same amount of money. Drink it or not drink it, we're still going to pay for that water, right, and even bats into it. Sam, I asked Tony Wakeham about it, and we're going to see if we can get some reaction from government as to exactly what is going on, what needs to be done, and who's responsible for it. And I appreciate making time. I hope you're on the mend. Yes, we're hopefully, I guess, I mean, uh, uh, Tony Wakeham, uh, I'm going to be reaching out to Tony Thursday. I do have to call the Department of Health today because somebody has to act on this area. I mean, I've been sitting on this area just seeing this going on all around me, and I ended up in the hospital. I didn't hear, I watched the media about water like that, but hey, we got a, a, a way worse important water issue here. It's been going on for a long time, right? And I got the proof. I'm showing it to everybody here on video. And you mean we? This is this has come right out of my house. And we, you mean this is serious business, and uh, and something seriously got to be done. You mean we need a new well, and uh, we got uh, a site suggested for the drill a well away from everything and everybody, and uh, and hopefully that. Something happens. You mean I don't know what's going to happen because you mean now it's 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 crazy. You mean for everything got to drink it in, or else you mean the wildlife has been drinking this water and and domesticated animals, farm animals got to drink this water. So you mean what what effects is it going to cause into the meat, into the eggs, into the milk? You mean we don't know in the wildlife. You mean the people eat the moose meat. There's a little bit, not that many moose here anymore, but you mean the bit of moose around the people that do hunt are rabbits, a little bit of grouse. What's and the trout that you get? What? How good is the syrup water? You mean it's affecting all the syrup? Is it going down to from? We'll eat that same food that they're in the same water they're drinking. So you mean something's got to be happening, right? One hundred percent, Sam. We're going to follow up on it. Uh, and again, I appreciate the time and the info you sent along this morning. Uh, stay in touch and stay tuned because we'll get some response from whether it be the Department of Health or some representative ministerially at the uh, provincial government. Because what I've seen and what I've heard is pretty disgraceful. So we'll follow up. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks. Same to you, Sam. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's uh, get a break in before we get to the news. When we come back, we're going to talk about the abandoned fish sauce plant out in uh, St. Mary's. Then someone wants to respond to what they just heard from Sam. Crown lands, whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Let's take it more to the executive director at the Eating Disorder Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Paul Toomey. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well. How are you doing? Not too bad at all. Patty, I just wanted to make a brief call this morning. I started out my morning this morning at a flag-raising ceremony at the town of Torbay. And, of course, they were raising the uh, Bell Let's Talk flag. And uh, at their meeting la- earlier this week, uh, they signed a proclamation declaring... Let's Talk Day in the town of Torbay. At that same meeting, they also signed a proclamation declaring February the 1st to 7th as Eating Disorder Awareness Week. So I had the opportunity to be there and speak to council. And I thought it was rather timely that Let's Talk Day comes just before Eating Disorder Awareness Week because of the connection to mental health. So really for us, I guess uh, today begins our awareness week uh, in the sense that we uh, we will be doing a lot on our social media to support Bell in, in their initiative here, and it will carry over into our week next week. And I, I just thought it was important to note that uh, the town of Torbay is on board with both, and uh, mental health is something that's uh, front and foremost with that town and should be with all towns and all citizens in this province. And with all businesses, I would add to that pile, because... 
You know, the stresses of everyday life and for a healthy, productive, loyal workforce, attention to mental health related matters, I think, is paramount, to be honest with you. Uh, What goes on during uh, uh, Eating Disorder Awareness Week, Paul? Anything particular we should know about? Uh, yeah, I guess there, there's a couple of things. Uh, flag raisings is certainly one of it. We have a number of towns who, who have our flags right now who will be raising them, including including Torbay, uh, City of St. John's, I believe, Town of Gander, uh, City of Cornerbrook. Uh, we will be uh, sitting down with uh, Minister Osborne on uh, the morning of uh, February the 1st uh, to sign a proclamation declaring eating disorder awareness week in the uh, in the town of uh, in the in the province and we're asking uh, pretty much all towns to to do the same thing uh we have a lunch and learn scheduled uh, during the week and uh, there'll be lots of other activities uh, coming up as well and we end the week off with uh recognizing our community support uh, supporters with a reception at Government House with our honor and uh, that's uh, always a very nice event but it gives us an opportunity to recognize people who have either volunteered or as, as you mentioned businesses that have supported us uh, to a great extent over the years and uh, on that day we'll be, we'll, be, uh, we'll be doing that. In between over the next few days I will certainly have some press releases out I'll talk to you again next week and we can talk about the theme for eating Disorder Awareness Week, but the, the theme every day is that if you need help, we are here, edfnl.ca, and we will help you get the help you need. Uh, I don't know if you'd like to comment on this, and feel free not to, but do you, your organization, and the people you serve have any thoughts on the integration of emergency room services at the new mental health facility with uh, the health sciences proper? Because uh-huh. I'm hearing a lot of people chime in on it, and it's, it kind of you know, Eastern Health saying it's as fundamental as health is health, and they consulted with lots of different groups in the mental health world, but the reaction that I'm getting is people think it's a bad idea. Does your organization have a position on this? We, we haven't taken a position on it yet, Patty, but from a, a personal perspective, my understanding was is that there were going to be separate areas within the, uh, within the emergency, the new emergency room setup. So I'm not really sure. I need to do a, a lot more in-depth study on it and uh, certainly see what my board feels and uh, and come forward with where we stand. But right now, I'm not really in a position to, to take a stand one way or the other. I, I will say I'm delighted to see that uh, there's going to be a, a large new emergency department. The fact that the new mental health facility is attached, and by the way, our our four-bed inpatient unit is moving to uh, a very nice piece of space in that building, and we're excited and looking forward to that for sure. I appreciate the time this morning. We'll speak again next week. Patty, thanks very much. You have a great day. You too, Paul. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Paul Toomey. He's the ED, the Executive Director at the Eating Disorder Foundation of NL. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Mayor Sheila Lee up in Riverhead wants to talk about that abandoned fish sauce plant out in St. Mary's. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Where am I going, Dave? Five? Okay, let's go to line number five. Jeff, you're on the air. Good morning, Jeff. Uh, yes, good morning. Welcome to the show. What's on your mind, sir? Uh, I was just uh, wanted to ask a question or uh, look for information, whichever way you want to take it, okay. uh, with regards to Crown uh, Lands and the Registry of Deeds. Now, to a lot of people here on the island that have purchased land from a previous owner or you know it was handed down through generations or whatever and when it was time to develop the property whether it be 
build a residential structure or a commercial structure or whatever, and, you know, you put your time and money into it, the legal process was taken to register that land. Yep. Now, to a lot of people, they thought that that meant Crown Lands has record of my title at the Crown Lands office. Now, with the development of technology over the last few years, a lot of people make use of the land use atlas, which is available online through Crown Lands. It is, yeah. That's an interactive map, yeah. Uh, correct. And on that now, as I won't get into the West Coast issue, but with the windmill development and land that is being allocated by the government for land or uh, windmill development across the island, you can easily go on there and you can see all across the Avalon, down the Buren Peninsula, here in the Upper Trinity South area. A lot of land is earmarked and available for applications for that. But when you look at your personal property that you went through the process to register with the Registry of Deeds, it don't show that on the map. It doesn't. So, you're right. So it's actually it's two separate entities within the government for registering land, which in the future or near future or distant future, whichever, when it comes down to it, Crown Lands is issuing or opening areas for development, but it's not shown that the land is actually occupied or owned by individuals that are actually there. So why is it that there's two separate entities doing the, the same thing and not interacting with each other? It's an excellent question, and my understanding is those two entities makes this province unique because in other provinces in the country, they're under the same umbrella because you're right. If you go to Crown Lands, which is under the Department of Fisheries, Forestry, and Agriculture, you can go to a site that talks about public draws, so that would be you know potentially for uh, agricultural uh, pro- proposals and or wind or cottage country. Then there's the residential use part of it there. Then there's business and then the land use atlas that you point out. You can do title searches. But just because you've been registered at the Registry of Deeds doesn't mean it's going to be reflected in any of these maps and or titles. So it's a strange disconnect, which is completely unnecessary as far as I can tell. So with that, you know, like my, my question is just to inform the general public, if your land is registered with the Registry of Deeds, do you have clear title to the land or is it only registered with the Registry of Deeds, but you don't have a Crown Land title? I don't know if I have a definitive answer to that, but I would imagine that's just a formality of process versus some additional uh, legal wrangling, whether it be acquiring of a title or what have you. But I don't take my word for it solely on that because I'm not 100% sure. Okay. And like I said, just to, just to touch base back to what's going on on the port of port now with the land development down there and it's pretty quiet in the, in the general media, but, you know, through social media, there are individuals that are down there protesting what's going on because of, you know, the land allocation that is taken in land within the communities, and they're being told that they don't have right to protest there because it's land that has been issued. If anyone wanted to, you can easily go on there and look at what has been mar- marked out on the Crown Lands uh, map for future development or available for development, I should say, uh, here on the Avalon and Buren Peninsulas, which encompasses a lot of privately owned properties. So, you know, it's it's a, just a heads up for people here that 
don't really know what's going on on the port of port with the protesting down there, it could potentially, depending on how companies want to proceed in the future, if somebody wanted to take in a bunch of land here to develop windmills, it is on the Crown Lands map as being available. Yeah, and well, uh, those leading that particular protest, they've been on this program, and we've tried to cover not only Crown Lands as a general topic, but the World Energy GH2 proposal as much as we can, and we're always happy to talk about it. And there's two different maps out there. There's one with Crown Lands, which is an incredible map when you think about the swaths of land that are still considered a Crown Land, and that would encompass some registered municipalities. So it's not just people living in cottage country, and unbeknownst to them, they don't own the land. These are right in the middle of major communities, so... It's a big deal. Then there's another map out there with the land uh, associated with the 31 proposals for wind projects, which curiously doesn't include anything on the Great Northern Peninsula, which kind of jumped off the map to me. So, yeah, those two maps are out there, and they're easy to find. Yes. Yeah. So that's that's my question was, why is it that government hasn't taken steps as it has been in other provinces? Because I've spoken with individuals at Crown Lands who said, when I worked in Ontario or Manitoba, it was all one one thing. But here in Newfoundland, we have two separate offices doing yep. the exact same thing, in my mind. I, I don't know if that's correct to say or not, but in my mind it is, right? Yeah, I don't know if it's the exact same thing, but there's certainly a distinct overlap and redundancy that could be addressed because if we can do it uh, differently under the one umbrella elsewhere, that certainly sounds like we should be doing the exact same thing here as opposed to the process that's currently in place, which is really confusing. And also for folks uh, interested in the Crown lands and the three areas of consideration that the province is talking about, some people are having problems with the website, which is EngageNL, but I would suggest that if you have any input you'd like to offer to the government, now's the time. So go to that website, say your piece regarding Crown Lands, whether it be industrial or commercial applications or the uh, abolition of squatters' rights on the 1st of January of 1977. That's the time to do it, and that's the site where you can go. Okay, have your say, Jeff, because I think the point you're making here is pretty important. We're always looking for efficiencies, not only for the general public, but for the government and overall cost. So for doing overlap work, why is the question. And Yeah, I mean, yeah. If, if you were an individual, well, at the time when Crown Lands was located up on Higgins Line, you would have to go to that office to do so much research. Then you go down to the Registry of Deeds and also research down there. That's right, yeah. So, like, you're doing the same thing in two separate government buildings, which, you know, is, is it just shows, you know, the organization of a lot of things that tend to streamline. And by streamline, I don't mean reducing numbers of employees or anything like that. I just mean the overall efficiency of it, right? Oh, sure. I totally get it. And... Uh just to take it one step further, and I think this is accurate, is if you are using a lawyer for any of this, you're also paying two fees because you have to do two different searches. Correct, yes, Yeah. exactly. Good to have you on, Jeff. Thanks for this. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, the Crown Lands issue here is a mess. And I would really start to get some traction when the fa- the Diamond family out in Catalina figured out that after 40 years of living in the same home on the same piece of property, go to sell and boom. So we've had Greg French, a lawyer based in Clarenville, who does a lot of work in the Crown Lands business, trying to paint the picture of where we are, why we're here, and what could be done better. So the consultations with the government are ongoing. You should have your say if you're so inclined, because it's going to be a big deal. Just look at the map of the, uh, the incredible amount of land that is indeed Crown Land. 
And I guarantee you, some of you listening this morning are living on a piece of land that you think you own and you probably don't. Uh, will I take Sheila now before the break, Dave? Let's go to line number three, say good morning to her worship, the mayor of the town of Riverhead, that's Sheila Lee. Mayor Lee, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Yeah, I just wanted a couple of minutes of your time to talk about this terrible situation in St. Mary's with this terrible, awful, dilapidated plant down there and the, the, the potential dangers that are, well, I should say, the dangers that are looming there now. Uh, I'm sure you probably know a lot about it because I think um, Steve was on your show and he was also on uh, on uh, the, the hour talk with uh, on Target. Um, with Linda, okay. yeah. Yeah, so I think you know a lot of it. Not a lot of it that needs to be said has been said, but um, uh, my concern now is is like how fast is action going to be taken here? Like I know that Mr. Davis uh, said that they were going to go after the owner. Well, I mean, um, it's it's really it's really uh, you know a, a, a very poor response because if we wait until they can locate the owner, and if they can get money from this owner, um, I have a feeling it, it was it's 22 or 23 years now this problem is there, and it could be just as much or more time down the road. I don't think we can wait for that at all. <clears throat> now, I was talking to our member, Sherry Gamna Walsh, this morning, which, of course, Sherry has been such an excellent representative for us here. And she she told me this morning that uh, that the, the, the people that really have to step up to the plate here is the federal government, and that uh, they're in they're in process now of discussions with them. And of course, Ken McDonald gave the commitment that when he's going back, he was going to really raise this thing. Discussions are great, but I, I, I hate to see I hate to see. Uh, you know, foot, feet being dragged and time being elapsed. Because uh, as I, I think maybe you can understand, you know, you probably saw some of the, the television coverage too. I was one of the 70 people that attended that meeting. Um, it, it, there's, a terrible, there's a terrible sense of worry and urgency here now in St. Mary's and in surrounding communities. I mean, children go to that school from all communities. And now I just heard, um, heard now, I think it was just on the news as I was waiting to get on open line, that the Department of Health, I think it is, are saying that there's, there's no worry about that school. There's no gases or whatever to be concerned about. Now, what we got to realize is, is in the past, there's been a window of time. I think they said at the meeting probably August and September at two months that it's most pronounced, this awful, awful smell. And the little girl who did a wonderful job on the interview explained, as, a, as she was a member of the school, she's moved on now to post-secondary, but she explained, you know, from a point of a student, it's a terrible smell and everything. They couldn't even open their windows in school. It was so powerful. The, the, the big field that's there for children to play on, which is a beautiful field, and it's being used not just during school hours, but on weekends and evenings, and uh, it's very busy. And they're basically uh, virtually on top of that sauce plant. And I remember the, the our mayor, our, the mayor of St. Mary, saying, Steve, that... Um, that even when they had tournaments, remember teachers coming to them, coaches coming to them and saying, "What is this ungodly smell?" Now, from the what was exposed, what was sent 
but at, when they got the Freedom of Information Act information back, CBC, it, you know, I'm thinking this should have been a pretty accurate report they got back. And and in in that case, there's no ends, ifs or buts about it. This is a very serious, critical situation down there. Um, the, the 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 consensus at the meeting was that first of all, right away, the government, federal government, should pay for security there to make sure there's nobody going to be even going in or near that building because you need to be masked up and everything to be actually go in there. So, um, like uh, walkers, is this an, an area where walkers walk? And any time I'm in St Mary's, I'm, I never fail. I just glance and here you see people walking. It's a very nice area to walk, and a very long area to walk, right out to the point. So, um, and and the other concern I have is we've had a number of new families coming into our area. It's surprising. Like homes that go up for sale are being bought up. And actually, one of the people who attended the meeting was the owner at the former Colada, Colada Inn Club, uh, Inn, which, which of course, he's not using as an inn, but he's using for his family. And he came all the way, I think, from B.C. And now he's, he loves the area. He loves his home. He wants to stay here with his family. But, you know, if he had realized and knew about the sauce plant and now know about the sauce plant, he may... I doubt very much if you would ever have chosen St. Mary's as a place to come to buy a property. Probably not. So there's a lot to what you're saying. So a couple of things. There's a big disconnect here. The school board said there's no such thing as an all-encompassing uh, air quality test. Whoever is hired as a technician to go in and test needs to know what they're testing for. Eastern Health and the school district say there's no jeopardy to students at that distance. Dunn Academy is some 300 meters from the plant. But at the exact same time, the rotting of the capelin and pineapple juice has produced hydrogen sulfide, which is absolutely dangerous. It's been detected in the building. So if we had the ability to do away with the eyesore of the abandoned fish plant in uh, Admiral's Beach, surely we could do something about this uh, dilapidated, is the word to use, and abandoned fish sauce plant in St. Mary's. We cannot have the province point fingers to the feds and the feds turn around and point fingers back here. You know, at the beginning, we should have clean up uh, as part of the contract with whether it be a fish plant or a mine or an oil well or anything else before we have to deal with this 17 or 20 years later. So something's got to give. I've seen that plant many times and I've smelled that absolutely disgusting stench that emanates from that abandoned fish sauce plant. So something has to give. I'm not so sure I'm buying the whole it's perfectly safe because if you're in that building, it's not safe at all. So at what distance are they saying? So 300 meters apparently is okay, but what about if it's 200 meters? What about if I'm just out for a walk, like you say, out to the point? How close do I get to that building with jeopardizing my health? And the beaches have yellow all over them, so that, that has come from this stuff that continue, you know, continues to drain out. Uh, I mean, we are really, really worried, and you know, and my the part that's worrying me now more is how long will there be before there be a decision? Like there's this. The money should come from somewhere to pay, to get this done now, and then worry about working out the particulars afterwards as to who should pay for this. I mean, the, this if it's, it's the most critical thing now for 
as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you know, in a, now I know that the, 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 uh, the government and the Premier and everything were very tied up with the ambulance services and, you know, the, the strike and everything, and that was they gave that their, their full attention the past few days. Well, I understand that. But I think now we have, we have an emergency situation here, a serious one, and I really think it, it really should mean that our Premier and the Minister and both levels of government, whoever, they should come in the same areas. They should be able to sit down with, with uh, um, um, the council and probably with neighbouring groups to neighbouring councils too to really have a good, a good look at and a good discussion on this because I don't know out there how many of those people in Cabinet and that really appreciate what we really have in here. Uh, I mean, the potential here is enormous now. And uh, we're only, you know, we're only a, a, an hour and a few minutes from the city. And our roads are getting better. We're getting more and more pavement done. Hopefully get more done at this coming year. So the potential, now we're going to be getting a... We're going to be getting fiber optic. Uh, there was a guy down in my driveway with a GPS uh, two days ago telling me now it's almost all completed uh, in regards to mapping. And the next step is the stringing of the, of the cable um, throughout the, the region. So I'm suspecting that within a year or less, we're all going to have a high-speed Internet. The possibility then is enormous for, develop, for, for business because, you know, as you know, then you can operate anywhere in the world if you have the proper connections, the proper speed. The potential here is enormous for us, and, I mean, we're so excited now that we have state-of-the-art fish plant opening up hopefully in April. Mm-hmm. This is an amazing plant. I mean, it's equal. It, everything has been revamped and improved and the latest technology and everything in this. So there's a lot of excitement. Uh, for all this and, and you know the first time in many years we've got a lot of hope for our region and to be able to grow our region there'll be spin-off industries coming our way but the, 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 the priority now for everybody and those poor people live close to that plant I don't know how to not have to have bad nervous breakdowns they're in terrible terrible uh, situation yeah. with the worry so all, all I'm asking is please don't pass the book Sit down, make a decision within a timely manner, and it should be really soon, and and get this done. And then worry, you know, figure out how it's all going to be paid for afterwards if, if they can't do it right now, in my honest opinion, you know? Sure. And uh, it's, uh, it's a legitimate worry, I would suggest, and I've seen it and smelled it, and it is very much a problem for the residents or anyone else who would like to make their way into St. Mary's for whatever reason. Well, I appreciate the time, Sheila. i got to go to the news. Okay, my dear. Thanks, Patty. Lovely talking to you. My pleasure. You provide such a wonderful service to let everybody hear what's on the go, and I, we, you know, you're invaluable to us. <laughs> Thanks, Mary Lee. Okay, bye-bye. Take care, bye-bye. It's Mary Sheila Lee out in Riverhead. Uh, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Dave is here to respond to Sam Gesso, sharing his worries about the water quality in Port of Port, and Dr. David Brake talking about what we've heard from the province's consumer advocate, Dennis Brown, and a response or rebuttal from John Siri from Drive Electric NL. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this segment on line number six. Uh, good morning, Dr. David Brake. You're on the air. Well, hi, Patty. It's great to be back. Um, thanks for uh, keeping uh, on with uh, all the good things you do and uh, for getting uh, Dennis Brown to call in and explain himself about uh, why ratepayers shouldn't be uh, contributing to... Uh, electric vehicle 
infrastructure. Yeah, and of course, John, sir, he took him to, or he rebutted it this morning. It's your position, sir. Yeah. Well, um, on a very narrow point, Dennis does maybe have a point. <laughs> um, one could argue that, uh, yeah, it should be taxpayers rather than ratepayers uh, providing, making sure that there's an adequate uh, EV charging infrastructure. But the, the broader point is um, he's not really explaining uh, and why it is that it does make sense that even if you have a gas car, you should still be chipping in a few pennies to make sure that uh, EV car adoption continues. Uh, there's, there are plenty of different uh, uh, reasons. Many of them haven't even been raised yet. Um, just for one example, um, if you want to attract tourists, there's going to be a, a large and increasing number who are going to want to drive around in their electric cars if they come off the ferry. Um, if you accept that, uh, as has been demonstrated, that uh, if you have cars that are driven long, a long time, the more you drive an electric car, the cheaper it gets. The total cost of ownership of an electric car is already lower. The Newfoundland public sector can and should be investing more in getting electric cars for its fleets where they work. But again, they can't do it if there's not an adequate electric vehicle charging network in place. So it's at, on those two cases alone, uh, having a good enough electric vehicle charging network saves the province money. It, it could, and it probably likely would. I think some of the people who are even half on side with uh, uh, Dennis Brown's position on this is, at some point, what does critical mass of EV usage look like to justify everybody chipping in on these chargers? You know, there's lots of examples where we all pay collectively to things that we might not use or ever utilize in our lives, and transportation is, I think, in that bucket somewhere. So if, for instance, wonder would Mr. Brown's position change if all of a sudden, and this is not going to be overnight, this is going to be a, a generational change, I would suggest, if we are at 50% plus one for EV usage in the province, does that justify public investment in these stations? And if so, then shouldn't we be ahead of that to encourage that type of transition if people think it's a good idea? I don't know what people are going to do with their own hard-earned money. There is going to be a, a day... Uh, where the, the technology and the innovation has advanced to make it more attractive. Price point is going to come back to worth. There's going to be lots of more enticements and probably rebates offered and tax credits offered. So things are changing. Whether people want to buy an electric vehicle or not, there are going to be more and more of them on the road over the years. So if, if it's ever going to reach the critical mass of 50 plus 1, then I think we should have a careful evaluation of when government does belong in the game of the installation. Because if you build it, they will come is the concept. Yeah, I, I think you. I think you are right. Obviously, um, and there will be a, a point, and I think it will be even before we reach fifty percent plus one. Uh, the problem we have is if we stall now, you can't just magic up a good charger network when you reach a point where you say, right now, it's appropriate to um, for there to be a charging network there. It needs to already be there, people who are trying to make a decision about which car to buy next need to have confidence that the charging network is there even before there are enough cars to make it 
you know, economic for the private sector to, to put one together. Dealers need to have time to have EV cars on the roads so they get to know about all the issues. People need to see other people who are using EVs able to use them so that they can and, and be able to talk to their neighbors about their EV experiences so they can make that an informed decision themselves. You can't do all this and just wait until everyone suddenly on the, on the island goes, oh, now's the time, and then poof, or give them an EV network to work with. They need to have that sitting there waiting for them. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of moving parts here. It's not as fundamental a question as to whether or not the general public should all be chipping in on paying for electric char- electric vehicle charging stations. It's There's a lot more to it than that, as you rightfully point out. Any final thoughts, David, before I sneak on another call here? Uh, yeah. Um, it, it, when we get to it, um, when we get to an adequate point, EV, EV owners can and should be chipping in uh, increasingly for the provision of their network. But given that where we are at the moment, uh, the cost for us 600 EV owners to, to do that today would be around 2,500 bucks per car uh, just for this year's installs. So um, it's a lofty ambition, but you know we can't get there yet. Um, it's not reasonable to expect all the costs to, to, to fall on us or indeed on the next year's EV owners. It's not as if these chargers are never going to be, it's not as if money being used to provide EV charges is, is being thrown away. It's quite clear that those charges will be used. And when we get to that point, they'll continue to be used. It's not money thrown away. It's just a need to get a little ahead of the demand curve and give people who are trying to make decisions in the public sector and the private sector uh, a way to make those decisions with some confidence that uh, they've got a charging network that they'll be able to use when they make that choice. Understood. Points taken this morning, David. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Take good care. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, let's get another one for the break. Line four. Dave, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Uh, great show, as usual. Thanks. I was listening earlier, and I heard a fellow from, uh, I'm pretty sure he's from uh, Port of Port Proper, Port of Port East or something like that. Um uh, not mainland or others, but uh, Mr. Sam Jesso, I think was his name. Yep. And he, I've seen things that he's written and whatever before. And he brought to mind when he spoke of an issue regarding water quality uh, that this has not been a new issue on the Port of Port. And I guess for fairness to everybody from Port of Port, like, like everybody, they deserve good drinking water. There's been the uh, discussions that I've seen this week that currently there's a reservoir that they use um, in their region, it's called Caribou Creek, that needs liner replacement. They need a proper water or artesian system for mainland. Mainland's under water boil order right now, which a lot of communities experience this throughout the year, there's no doubt in different parts of our region, different reasons from THMs to whatever else. But currently, we most often hear from those that are opposed to the project on Port of Port. And believe me, I wouldn't be one of those that would jump in on a project to endorse it or say it was great until 
all factors were considered, and especially for the people of Port-au-Port, who would be, you know, the ones greatly impacted by the uh, number of uh, sites of windmills and whatever, but that would be but one region. There's three such regions planned for the Bay St. George area. Well, <clears throat> most often you see a vocal minority that has been putting out a fair bit of disinformation and worry around the occurrence of such projects in your region. One of them has been basically centered around crown lands, the allocation of crown lands being available for projects of this type. You've noted the difference in the way the crown lands are handled here on the island, and that's because of a nightmare, the reality of what Newfoundland was. You wouldn't want to have to try and deal with what was originally an old reed lot, which was a grant from the British government that a lot of people before Confederation received British grants of land that weren't taken into mapping and whatever for years. So it's become a nightmare. And that's for everybody island-wide. But I have asked a question of World Energy, the people that run it. Would they have any intentions of like going into an area where there would be big expropriation of whatever of lands or whatever, that's not going to happen. There have been people that have been fearing, you know, like, God, I've been here for 30 years, 40 years, we're going to lose this. That's not going to happen to you. If it were a case where you're in proximity to towers or infrastructure that you really don't like the idea of it being near you, then you would also have the option to discuss being bought out or whatever the case may be because there's none of this is off the table because it's never really been put on the table. These communities in Port-au-Port are like just about every region in Bay St. George. For the past number of years, we've seen so much out-migration. Our numbers in our towns have dropped off to the point where now they're even being considered whether or not they're viable. We're looking at the need for amalgamation of communities. We still have the needs for these water projects. Our roads are in terrible shape. We're not able to attract doctors and nurses to our region. Well, you've got to be recognized as a viable and vibrant moving forward type region to attract the type of professional that you're expecting to come here to work. They gotta have local schools. They want their kids to play in minor hockey and for that minor hockey to exist, a summer program. But we cannot be identified any longer as a region that's simply in total need, total want, but we can't allow something to happen, such as a green energy project. Now, there are those, I'm sure, that are going to jump on the bandwagon and want to crucify me for saying, well, let's take a look at this more so than the negative. What could we expect out of this? Well, there hasn't even really been an ask of the company or the proponents that are involved for what they could deliver. Maybe there is an artesian well program that could be done and put into place to supply great drinking water for a region that hasn't had it. Maybe because there were jobs in a region in an area where people wanted to stay, where you see young families moving in, building houses, kids going to school. But the problem is there's been a, a fairly serious downplay of the long-term 
economic opportunity behind this project. I've, I've seen it written. I've heard it spoke about. We're talking three to 400 guaranteed long-term jobs. That's as much or more than we had when we had a functioning mill here. The results of these three, 400 jobs, they're spin-offs from this industry. Hydrogen fuel cell manufacturing, which is a big manufacturing process, welding. Remains to be seen, though, if any of that is actually included, right? That's the real problem here, is whether or not people want the wind turbines where they live or any of the other concern that they share, and fair ball, is whether or not we're going to actually have people trained up to either be part of the construction, the ongoing operations, and for any of the other secondary and tertiary processing manufacturing things that you talk about, because there's no indication that any of that's coming to pass. No. Well, I guess what it is is that until there's an actual industry, nobody really plans on it happening. When you see the production of hydrogen here, for the first off, for the start, it's intended to be uh, an export product. But let's let's look at it. It's, it's going to be a private enterprise that wants to have as many irons in the fire as they can in ways to make money. I mean, wind power itself... Uh, Wind power has been used now for direct air carbon capture, which is something that actually does help the environment. It's actually hauling carbon out of the air, and it spawns behind wind power projects happening. We've had enough out-migration here. We've seen enough U-Hauls. And I can guarantee you that there's nobody, nobody that wants to see such a project as this to go forward if it was so environmentally bad or if it was so terrible to your health my God, I would never do it. But I've seen most of the worries and concerns that were out there, some dated material and, and things that functioned or, or you know, it, it got around and, and circulated around people that were just complete misnomers. It, it was misinformation. What we need right now to remain as a region, we need a succession plan. Our, towns are get, our townspeople are getting older. Our children are fewer. They're growing up in Alberta. If we're going to change things around, we got to give people a reason to stay here. Always be, it always will be the case. Dave, I'm late for the break. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. All right, final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line one, say good morning to the independent member uh, for Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Uh, thank you for having me on. Um, Patty, uh, before I get to my topic, uh, I just want to uh, say to uh, Mayor Ryan and... Uh, the council down in uh, St. Mary's that uh, certainly I throw to them my uh, moral support, if uh, nothing else. I think it's absolutely ridiculous that uh, they would be in this situation for uh, all this time and that the government knew uh, about the fact that this was taking place with this soft plant and uh, basically ignored it, ignored it, allowed it to happen. So I certainly hope that uh, they're going to get working on it, uh, get taken care of. I know that uh, my colleague, Sherry Gammon-Walsh, I know she's pretty much like a dog with a bone when it comes to these things. And uh, uh, to her credit, she did get the old plant cleaned up uh, down in Admiral's Beach. And uh, and that was, I think, more of an eyesore uh, than it was uh, a safety concern like this. Uh, I'm sure she's going to be working on it, and I wish her all the best with it. And uh, uh, I would agree with uh, Mayor Sheila Lee, who I heard on earlier that uh, let's get this done, let's get it cleaned up, let's look out for the safety of the people. And concurrently, because government should be able to uh, walk and chew gum at the same time, so concurrently let's get uh, the legal team on uh, tracking down the owners and uh, holding them accountable if that's uh, possible under the law. 
Uh, there's nothing to say that you have to try that first. You can clean it up and at the same time go after them. And if we can get some money back from them, fine and dandy. If not, well, then I guess that's all we can do. But at the end of the day, it's got to be cleaned up. So uh, certainly encourage all parties, uh, uh, you know, like I say, provincially and, and uh, Mr. McDonald federally to uh, get working on this and get it done for the people of St. Mary's. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Patty, I just wanted to... Uh, Talk about the, uh, I guess, the legislation that was passed in the House Assembly um, for the uh, private ambulance operators. <laughs> the legislation itself, I think, was uh, was 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 good legislation, uh, albeit to my mind, it's certainly still not going to solve all the issues uh, that that are outstanding. There is an opportunity for binding arbitration, which is a good thing. Uh, I do share the same concerns that the NDP had about the timing of it and i wonder why this could not have been uh, we knew that they were into negotiations we knew that a strike was always a possibility so why the government wouldn't have passed this legislation months ago so that when they did get into a strike position they would have had their essential services agreement in place before they went out as opposed to waiting for a strike to happen uh but that is what it is that's what the government decided they were it's up to them to defend that not me um, but I, I do just want to speak to the general uh, issue, I guess, of uh, ambulance services and government's responsibility. And uh, I come from an occupational health and safety background. That's what I did professionally before getting into politics. And uh, one of the things you talk about all the time in health and safety, and there's actually a section in the Occupational Health and Safety Act called the Principal Contractor Clause. And basically what that means is that if I own a company, but then I hire a contractor to do work on my behalf, I still have a responsibility for the safety of the people doing that work. In other words, I can't hire a company, to, a, a contractor to come in and to my business, repair my roof. And when I'm walking in the office every day, I see guys hanging off a scaffold, with, uh, 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 which is rickety falling apart, not wearing harnesses, not wearing safety equipment, and so on, and say, well, that's not my problem. That's the contractor's problem. Under the law, because I'm the one who let that contract, I still have that responsibility for safety. I would liken that to the situation here. Governments cannot simply, they have a much broader responsibility in my view, than simply saying, I reach an agreement with a private operator to offer life and death, emergency public services, and once I have that agreement in place and they're willing to do it for X amount of dollars, then I walk away, put my hands up in the air and say, well, the contract's in place, let the chips fall where they may. Government does not have that luxury. So to my mind, <coughs> what's really been missing here is standards, having standards in place. Government uh, offers funding, for example, to child care uh, uh, businesses and to personal care homes. And <coughs> they provide that funding. When they're providing that funding, though, they have standards in place. The government will come in on a regular basis to a child care and Look at the physical structure. Make sure you got the proper emergency exits. Make sure the, the walkways are a certain width. Make sure that the toys are safe toys, certain kinds of toys. Making sure the food they're serving the kids are for snacks are a certain way. Making sure the programming is placed. Sure. These are things that they demand of them. If you're going to be, be accredited by the government and we're going to provide funding, then you must do these things. So I don't know why government when dealing with these private operators, if that's the way we're going to go, and there's an argument it should be all be public anyway, but assuming that's, that's the way we're to now, <coughs> why can we not put in standards and say, listen, 
as part of our negotiations with you, we need to figure out you must have certain levels of training for your operators. There must be certain operators working at all times. You cannot have operators on call for free. Well, you that's part of the essential services agreement that the union is dealing with viewers at this moment in time. Simply because we clear 12 o'clock, Paul, you've had the last word. You can finish this thought next week if you have time. Yeah, okay, I, I will. But And I appreciate it, Penny. But I guess that's my point. My point is is that the government needs to be more hands-on with any private operator. Does not simply give you the money and walk away. They also have to say, if we're going to give you the money, we're going to have this arrangement. There are standards that we expect in terms of your operators, how much, like they're, how they're remunerated, getting paid for time work, making sure they're not on the road too too long, uh, being on safe on safe conditions, making sure that we have proper number of ambulances, people are trained. If you're not able to do that, we'll find another uh, operator who is, and if we can't, I guess we'll have to take it in house. But that's kind of where my thought is: cannot contract away your responsibilities especially for a public service of this of this magnitude. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Patty. All the very best. You too, Paul. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. We'll pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. Talk in the morning. Bye-bye.